Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, Nick Dick and Best is joining me, and we're going to be talking about Pluto in Aquarius in history. Uh, so, hey, Nick, thanks for joining me. Hey, Chris, thanks for having me back. All right, we are back to do another blend of some history and some astrology. This is going to be a great episode. So, let me talk a little bit about the the genesis and the premise of this episode, where um, this year the planet Pluto is moving into the zodiac sign of Aquarius, and it's going to stay there for the next 20 years all the way until 2044. So many people are asking themselves what this era will be like over the course of the next two decades, and what sort of changes and events might take place. So one of the tools that astrologers have for predicting the future is going back and studying the past. And when I was preparing for the 2024 year ahead forecast episode last month, I went back and did some research on what previous Pluto and Aquarius periods have been like. And my goal in this episode is to share some of that extended research, especially because I couldn't fit it all into that forecast episode. Um, so I found a number of extremely interesting correlations between different Pluto and Aquarius periods and many echoes and repetitions, and we'll show how a number of these themes are actually becoming relevant for us again today as we're at the cusp of a new era. So. Um, yeah, studying the past in order to predict the future, that's really one of the greatest keys to astrology, one of the greatest secrets in some sense, but it's one that, that you and I have both really refined and, and developed in a number of different techniques. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, to my mind, it's, it is the way to learn astrology is just to sort of test these different you know planetary cycles and how they line up against each other in different configurations and and work the story out from there. Um, it's certainly, this approach has taught me a lot more about astrology than any uh, astrology book could could hope to teach me. Yeah, because on the one hand, we do have like symbolic interpretations of what something should mean symbolically based on its astronomical movement or appearance, but then this is really where it's really grounded in a sort of empiricism by going back, looking at what happened the last time a placement occurred what correlations happened with it, and then over an extended period of time looking for repetitions, like you really get a much more concrete sense of what the astrology is is indicating and what the placement is indicating. Yeah, that's just it. And there's because there's there's no end to the amount of work you can do. So if you really just uh, do like you and I have done and spend a long time over many years uh, studying astrology in this way, um. Yeah, you just you come away with a, a much deeper knowledge of how astrology works than if you just learned from books and just gave readings to people you met. Um, you know, this is this is a really important way to develop uh, any kind of facility with astrology, in my opinion. Yeah, well, that and that's actually that's a good point because that's one of the issues with Pluto and Aquarius is that it has such a long orbital period of two hundred forty-eight years of more than two centuries that. You can't exactly just like go and like, you know, study people you know's birth charts to see like what Pluto and Aquarius indicates of people around you, because it's been more than two centuries since anyone was born with Pluto and Aquarius. Yeah. Last time Pluto was in Aquarius, people were wearing white powdered wigs, you know. It's it's a long way away. I mean, I'm kind of up for bringing that back. I don't know about you, but I yeah, well, I, I can be. see it working for you, pal. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I wouldn't um, mind. They look pretty cool. They look right. like Mozart, you know, whatever. 
right? We'll see, we'll see what happens. But so yeah, so this is actually one of the areas in which you have to, you're almost forced to go back and study history just because you can't study like contemporary famous nativities from the past century or something like that, which is, you know, or or, or ones from even your lifetime, which is the more usual access point for many astrologers. So this is one area where you're forced to study history. Um, and yeah, so this episode is going to be largely like a collection of sort of my research and notes up to this point. This isn't like a fully finished product, but um, I have found some very interesting threads and I think it's going to create, it's going to set a nice foundation for future research with some of the things that I've found um, that we'll, we'll present today. Yeah, I got to say, um, you did an amazing job with, with um, you know, shaping today's episode and I've already learned a lot just reading some of the notes. I mean, I, of course, I study a lot of history with astrology, but you have a much, much greater facility with ancient history than I do. My, my forte is more, um, you know, modern history, 18th century onward. Um, so yeah, I've, I've already learned a lot and your audience is in for a huge treat with everything you've put together today. And I'll do my best to add, you know, interesting things that are where I can, but, uh, this is a great learning experience all around. Awesome. Okay. So, um, like we said, it takes more than two centuries for Pluto to return to Aquarius each time. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go back and review um, 12 specific Pluto and Aquarius periods in the past, or 11, including the current one, which will be the 12th. So this takes us all the way back to about 700 BCE, or 700 BC, however you want to call it. Um, and let me show a diagram really quickly that shows the periods we're going to be talking about. So this is a list of all Pluto and Aquarius periods when the first ingress of Pluto began, when Pluto first moved into Aquarius, the year that it did, and then the year in which Pluto made its final departure from Aquarius in that era. Um, so what we have here then over the past nearly 3,000 years is just 11 different periods up till now, and then the current one in 2022 and 2023 will be the 12th period um, that we'll cover towards the very end. Once we've finished going through history, we'll sort of project that out into the future to see, kind of anticipate some of the themes that are going to come up for us today. Yep, can't wait. All right, cool. So um, last thing I wanted to mention here is in a little bit of preliminaries is um, that Pluto has a highly eccentric or elliptical orbit than the other planets. And as a result of that, it spends much more time in some signs the zodiac and less time in others. So, for example, in the current cycles, it spends the most time in the signs of Taurus and Gemini, which is about 30, 31 years, whereas it spends the least amount of time in Libra and Scorpio, which is about 12 years. So Aquarius is kind of um, in the shorter to medium-sized side of the spectrum at 20 years in the current cycles, so that it's either the longest of the short signs or it's the shortest of the medium signs, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And you have a really interesting uh, um, tally of just how long each uh, transit of Pluto through Aquarius has lasted, and it it seems to be varying in length. It, it much older uh, transits took about twenty five years to go through the sign, and now it takes about twenty one. Is that right? Yeah, 
Yeah, here it is. So right. the early the earliest one that we're going to talk about, which is like 674 to 647 BCE, uh, Pluto was in Aquarius for 27 years. But then we can see due to the eccentricity of its orbit, um, it counts downwards so that the next cycle it spent 26 years, 200 years later, the next one it spent 25 years in Aquarius, then a few later it spent 24 years down to 22, and then eventually in the present one, it'll spend about 20, 21-ish years. Right. So it, it would be, I, I didn't realize it, it varied like this. I mean, maybe I was sort of vaguely aware of it, but it's really something this diagram really sort of uh, sparked a, an, a, a eureka moment in my mind, just realizing how, how much it has been shaving down over, you know, the centuries and millennia. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it would, it would be interesting to study all the, you know, Pluto through all the signs and see how that that variation is is moving, like what signs are increasing in length and what signs are decreasing in length and where it's all going. That's something that's really sort of beyond the scope of anything I've looked at. So it's really interesting. Yeah, for sure. Um, and here is a diagram that just shows, it's like most of the planetary orbits, they are ellipses, but they're a little bit more circular and a little bit more regular whereas Pluto's orbit is inclined and also highly elliptical. So that's why you have some of that variation, and that's why it spends more time in certain signs and less time in others. Yeah. I, I wonder about this diagram, though, because it seems to be indicating that Jupiter's got a really weird elliptical orbit, which I think it, it is not the case, at least not as wild as that, but Mars does. Mars does have a sort of a more skewered elliptical orbit, not quite, a, and nothing like Pluto, of course, and all the other planets besides Pluto are, are you know, right there on the ecliptic plane. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, I that being it's said, just, it's still, uh, at least at least as far as Pluto goes, that's a pretty accurate depiction of just how wildly different the orbit is relative to any of the other planets. Yeah, it's just an approximation to get a, give people an idea of why that might be happening and, and just the difference between like, imagine a perfect geometrical circle that's perfectly round versus imagine an oval. And so if Pluto is more of an oval compared to the perfect circles of the other planets, then um, in certain parts of the oval, of course, if you put the zodiac around that, then it's going to go through certain signs longer and through certain signs in a much shorter duration. Yeah. We see something sort of similar with Mars on a much smaller scale, um, where it spends much more time in Leo and very little time in Aquarius, relatively for much the same reason, because its elliptical orbit is such that uh, it appears to spend more time. There are more frequent retrogrades in Leo, and therefore it spends more time there. Right, for sure. Okay, so elliptical orbit, I think that's good for the astronomy. Um, there's some great stuff on actually AstroSeq um, where you can go and see um, on astroseek.com, like there's different graphs and charts that you can pull up where Peter, the programmer of AstroSeq, shows like the, the periods or like the duration of periods and the averages for different cycles. Mm. So that was kind of helpful when I was doing some of this research and I'd recommend checking that out. Um, other than that, so I want to transition first before we get into history to first talk a little bit about the planet Pluto and then a little bit about the sign Aquarius to understand the astrological symbolism. So for Pluto, I wanted to just read this quote from Richard Tarnas's book, Cosmos and Psyche, where he did 
uh, historical survey, largely of outer planet alignments, um, where he didn't necessarily focus. He didn't focus on the signs of the zodiac, but instead he focused on aspects between outer planets in history. And this is sort of his summary of the basic keywords and principles of Pluto that he drew from that study. So he says, Pluto is associated with the principle of elemental power, depth, and intensity, with that which compels, empowers, and intensifies whatever it touches, sometimes to overwhelming and catastrophic extremes, with the primordial instincts libidinal and aggressive, destructive and regenerative, volcanic and cathartic, eliminative, transformative, ever-evolving, with the biological processes of birth, sex, and death, the cycle of death and rebirth, with upheaval, breakdown, decay, and fertilization, violent purgatorial discharge of pent-up energies, purifying fire, situations of life and death extremes, power struggles, all that is titanic, potent, and massive, Pluto represents the underworld and underground in all senses, elemental, geological, instinctual, political, social, sexual, urban, criminal, mythological, demonic. It is the dark, mysterious, taboo, and often terrifying reality that lurks beneath the surface of things, beneath the ego, societal conventions, and the veneer of civilization beneath the surface of the earth that is periodically unleashed with destructive and transformative force. Pluto impels, burns, consumes, transfigures, resurrects. In mythic and religious terms, it is associated with all myths of descent and transformation, and with all deities of destruction and regeneration, death and rebirth. Hmm. So I want to read that because I think it's a good summary of some of the themes associated with Pluto generally as a planet in astrology. Yeah, no, that's really good. I think the the uh, you know, I mean, Rick always does a, a great job. It's a fantastic book. Um, the one thing I would add to that, I think, is is um, I think Pluto is also transportative. It's not just it doesn't just transform you uh, or or you know whoever's subject to its transits, but um, it, it tends to take someone from one world and tr take them to another. Um, if they're used to the the you know the uh, um, the boardrooms and the penthouses of, of high rises, then they find themselves in some alleyway or, or vice versa. Um, you know, it, it, uh, it transports us between social classes, uh, sometimes literally geographically, but certainly the, the environment that we're, we're situated in, uh, it, it transforms all of that. Yeah. Also, um, a friend of ours, the late astrologer Alan White, used to say that Pluto takes small things and makes them big, or it takes big things and makes them small. And I think that's a really good yeah. keyword and imagery, especially here, is that Pluto tends to take things to extremes and to magnify things and to take something that's like a little thing and then blow it up into a huge thing. And we'll see that as a recurring theme as we go through the history. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, just like it... Uh Shortly after its discovery, we, we started doing things with atoms and also transistors, I think another very Plutonian invention. Uh, talk about taking big things and making them small. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so that's Pluto. And then with Aquarius, so Aquarius is um, an air sign. 
It's fixed, masculine. Uh, traditionally, it's said to be ruled by the planet Saturn, and it's also said to be a cold sign, which is opposite to the hot, fiery sign of Leo, um, using the original Stoic approach to the elements. So um, I was trying to figure out how to summarize some things in Aquarius, and I actually did a whole series on the signs of the Zodiac last year, and um, I did an episode on Aquarius with astrologers Aaron Fogel and Bear River. And what I decided to do to try to condense down like some of the insights of that episode is I used um, an AI program and asked it to summarize this like three-hour three episode that we did into some main points. So I wanted to share that with you today because I think it's kind of useful to contextualize what we're about to talk about. Um, as well as just like fitting for our, our time period where where this is like some of the first or some of the first astrologers that can do things like this, basically, like using AI to start summarizing and helping to accentuate our research. So this is what the AI came up with. Um, it said, Aquarius, the 11th sign of the zodiac, is explored in this podcast episode. The hosts discuss the key qualities and characteristics of Aquarius, contrasting it with its predecessor Capricorn. Aquarius is described as a fixed air sign, representing a shift from the material and concrete focus of Capricorn to a more interconnected and collective perspective. Aquarius is associated with the element of air, symbolizing communication, information, and social connections. It is ruled by Saturn, which brings in a sense of discernment and objectivity to the sign. The hosts delve into the concept of time in relation to Aquarius, highlighting its forward-thinking nature and its ability to envision a better future. Aquarius is seen as a sign that pushes boundaries and challenges social conventions, often standing outside the norm due to the opposition with Leo. It is associated with innovation and technology, as well as the desire to make the world a better place. However, the hosts also note the potential pitfalls of overobjectivity and detachment that can come with Aquarius, leading to a disconnect from human experience and a tendency to idealize the future. The podcast explores the role of Aquarius in communication and storytelling, emphasizing its ability to transmit ideas and narratives on a collective level. Aquarius is seen as a sign which seeks to understand seeks understanding and knowledge, often with a broad scope and a focus on the bigger picture. The hosts discuss the tension between the fixed and cold qualities of Aquarius, which can sometimes lead to a sense of disassociation or dehumanization. However, they also highlight the sign's capacity for inclusivity and its desire to fight for the underdog, rooted in Saturn's qualities of discernment and equity. It is a sign that inspires us to look beyond the present, embrace innovation, and work towards a brighter future, but also reminds us of the importance of staying grounded in the present and connected to our fellow humans. I like that last bit where it's like the AI that's talking about <laughs> that's staying what I'm thinking. <laughs> well yeah. done, AI. <laughs> yeah. He's like, hello, fellow humans. Like, uh, like that, that meme with Steve Buscemi. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well done. Well done. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's getting, uh, it's getting pretty eerie, that AI. Uh, that almost sounds like it was written by a person, but, uh, a very articulate non-person anyway. Yeah, well, it's summarizing, you know, our episode, like four hour episode and some right. of the main themes. And those were some of the main themes in that like forward looking component. It's like one of the things we focused on was the transition from Capricorn as an Earth, Saturn ruled sign that's feminine and more almost backward looking and more 
in some sense, almost like conservative or focused on the past in that way versus switching to Aquarius as a, as a masculine air sign ruled by Saturn where the time, the concept of time is still important, but then it becomes more forward looking into the future in terms of the orientation towards time. And I think that's a core thing for Aquarius that we're going to, we're going to see come up a lot here. Um, in addition to other themes having to do with like communication, information, and um, like collectivization involving like societies in general and things like that. Yeah. Um, I also think of, I mean, I, I tend to define the two Saturn-ruled signs relative to the signs they oppose. So Capricorn being the Saturnian sign that, that you know, sees Cancer and the moon. Uh, and it's more of a sort of a, a, the absence of light on the moon, whereas, whereas Aquarius is, is sort of contrary to the light of the sun. Um, and, and, you know, the individual represented by Leo as opposed to the sort of the the collective represented by the moon in Cancer. Um, so yeah, um, Aquarius is 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 very much about the individual vis-a-vis the collective and and that that relationship um, in its most sort yeah. of bare bones. Yeah, yeah, and we expanded on that a lot about the opposition between Leo and Aquarius, and Leo representing like usually like the status quo or that which is central or that which is popular versus Aquarius being opposite to that and therefore being that which is like outside of the status quo, which can sometimes mean like that which is weird, that which looks avant-garde. Um, but then the interesting like, um, what is it, like a dialectic between those two, which is that eventually Aquarius, even though it looks weird at first or it look because it's outside of the status quo, eventually sometimes it sets a trend that's new and forward thinking that eventually comes uh, catches on until eventually that becomes the status quo itself so that there's this interlinking and interplay between Aquarius and Leo. Yeah, I'm I'm remembering my old um Aquarian astrology mentor Axel Harvey uh who kept his pencils in a freezer. Uh if you know if you're close to Aquarians they usually have some really unusual habit like that but the one that is totally rooted in logic. He kept his pencils in the freezer cuz it kept them sharp and you know I couldn't argue with that. For sure. That's, that's some classic Aquarius right there. Yeah, I'll have to try that. <laughs> I don't um, use pencil. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's the only downside. Um, <laughs> I'll put my MacBook, my iPad pencil in the freezer and see if there it works. There you go. Yeah, keep it sharp. All right, cool. Well, those are the preliminaries. Let's jump into going through these periods and let's talk about our first period of Pluto and Aquarius. So we're going to go all the way back. Um, over 2,000 years, almost 3,000 years ago, the first period I want to touch on is uh, Pluto and Aquarius period from 674 to 647 BCE. So um, I try to look through history, and this is where things get a little dodgy in terms of like very well-recorded history, especially slightly before this point. Um, but th the primary things that I saw are one of the things that immediately stood out to me as somebody who's uh, kind of like a historian of astrology is that at this time period in the, around the middle of the 7th century BCE, this was the high point of Mesopotamian state-supported astrology under the ne Neo-Assyrian kings Ashardaran and Ashur Ashurbanipal. 
um, in Mesopotamia, which is roughly located in what is now modern-day Iraq. So this is a period when they had um, 10 different colleges of astrologers that were set up all around Mesopotamia who would watch the sky and send their reports to the king. And we actually have a bunch of records of their reports on cuneiform tablets from this time. Um, and in fact, a huge chunk of most of what survives of our, our information about Mesopotamian astrology survives from this time due to these vast libraries that were um, compiled in this century, especially when, when Mesopotamian astrology was at its high point as being a state-supported um, endeavor. And um, one of the things that brought up for me is the reason why Mesopotamian astrology was a state-supported endeavor at that time. And it made me think of this book um, and the introduction to this book I had read a few years ago titled The Art of Divination in the Ancient Near East by Stephen M. Mall. And um, he has this paragraph, this introduction, I want to read it really quickly, where he says, Knowledge of the future promises not only security and stability, reaching far beyond the present, but also enormous advantages over those without access to such knowledge. The ability to glimpse what is still to come and thus, thus becomes almost automatically a highly desirable and jealously guarded quantity. It is an instrument of domination, granting enduring power to all those who have it at their disposal. Um, so, for him, the way he's like framing this is like a book on divination in ancient Mesopotamia. He just opens it talking about astrology and other forms of divination being seen as almost like an advanced technology that could be used to see the future. Um, and so that's why it became this high-level state-supported operation, as well as sort of like a secret that was used to dictate and plan state affairs. Um, and there's something very important there, like the kernel of something very important that we'll see come up as a recurring theme over and over again in future periods, which is um, governments and major entities and their attempts to control emerging technologies and to use those technologies in order to exercise power um, over the populace or, or over other countries and to, to use it to their advantage, basically. Indeed, indeed. And um, speaking of artificial intelligence, it'd be nice to have AI translate all those old cuneiform tablets, because I understand we've only translated maybe 10, 20% of them of, of what's, you know, stored up in libraries. So yeah, you know, got to get AI I, on that. It's funny that you mentioned that because last night for the first time I tried this because I didn't think it would work, especially like a year ago when ChatGPT and stuff like that first came out, these language models, um, these large language models. But last night for the first time, I actually fed in some passages of Vadius Valens in ancient Greek. And I said, translate this from ancient Greek. And it translated, it actually did really well. And I was actually kind of kind of shook. I was kind of shocked <laughs> at how well it did at translating these ancient Greek astrological passages, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So just imagine what it could do with all that, you know, all those texts in cuneiform. What could we learn about astrology that we haven't learned yet? Yeah, you for know, sure. Uh, yeah, because those people were at it for quite a while, even over the course of that uh, transit of uh, Pluto through Uranus in that brief 27-year period or whatever it was. Uh, there's, there's a lot that's documented that we, we really could benefit from, from having translated for us. 
Yeah, and one of the things actually that started that I also wanted to note about this period that was a specific um, event and like a discrete thing that may have coincided with Pluto going into Aquarius is that the um, this scientific project that we know today that we refer to as the Astronomical Diaries um, started being recorded in Mesopotamia at this time where Mesopotamian astrologers who were also sky watchers would go out every day and they would observe the sky and they would write down um, where the planets were and major astronomical events that could be seen in the sky. But they would also start noting other things that were happening in the world at the time. So they would note um, the um, height of the river at the time. They would note um, the prices of different commodities on the market. So they would note market prices and they would also note other major um, social or political events that took place at that time. And what's crazy about this is the oldest astronomical diary is dated to 652 BCE, which falls exactly in this Pluto and Aquarius period. Um, but what's crazy about it is that this research program persisted from that point for the next like seven or eight centuries. Um, with the latest astronomical diary that's securely dated dates to about 61 BC, so almost like 600, 700 years later. Um, and so the scholars, when they talk about this, they always rave about it, the, the historians of science, because they say that this is probably the longest scientific research program that was ever conducted in like world history, um, certainly in the West, because it lasted um, essentially unbroken for over 700 years. Um, so David Ping David Pingree, for example, writes that someone in the middle of the 8th century conceived of such a scientific program and obtained support for it is truly astonishing. That it was designed so well is incredible, and that it was faithfully carried out for at least 700 years is miraculous. So this is an example, and this will be a re reoccurring theme it's not just like astrology being at its high point, Mesopotamian states supported astrology at this time, but also the initiating of scientific research programs that um, change the world can sometimes happen during Pluto and Aquarius periods as well. Indeed, indeed. That's just amazing. I mean, imagine like 700 years ago, <laughs> you know, you're in the, in the year 1324, um, you know, imagine starting a, an ongoing scientific research uh, project from that era in history until right now. Uh, it kind of boggles the mind. Right, exactly. And to have your, you know, because that was necessary because you had to observe all those things in order to eventually, it was from programs like that that they eventually were able to develop scientific models and they were able to develop accurate calculations for planetary recurrences to like figure out how long it took for different planets to um, repeat their placements over a certain number of years or days or what have you. And then this eventually led to the development of like astronomical models about the world. And then this eventually led to astronomical models about the cosmos and how the cosmos was structured and understanding that better. And that eventually led to, you know, so many subsequent scientific discoveries about things like gravity, um, you know, relativity, quantum mechanics, and everything else really goes back to this scientific program and the need to have accurate data of where the planets have been in the past 
in order to be able to predict where they will be in the future. And once you have that raw data, you can do so much with it. But they they didn't have that up until that time. Yeah, no one gave them solar fire. But um, no, seriously, this, um, you know, it, this is also, we would have no astrology, not as we know it, certainly no horoscopic astrology as we know it. Um, yeah, without this, this uh, foundation. Exactly. And it's funny that you mentioned that because that brings us to our next period where we go from the 7th century BCE and we jump forward almost 300 years to the next Pluto and Aquarius period, which occurred between 430 to 404 BCE. Yeah, it seems so we, like it was just yesterday. Yeah, exactly. Just like just like 2023, like zipped right. by. Like <laughs> yeah. Sometime. yeah. Um, so this period, um, the primary thing that I wanted to mention about this period that's actually really interesting um, is that this is the time period in which natal astrology seems to have been developed because the oldest birth charts, the very first birth charts that ever existed, date to 410 BCE, which falls right in this period a little bit towards the end of it. And the oldest chart is actually dated specifically to April 29th, 410 BCE, and it has Pluto at 24 degrees of Aquarius. So here, for those watching the video version, is a picture of that chart uh, with Pluto right there at 24 degrees of Aquarius. So what's important about this is the context of part of what happened. So one, one, on the one hand, we have to realize that this is like a new technology, that even though we've had this technology for over 2,000 years now, this idea of birth charts and natal astrology, Prior to this time, this idea may not have existed. And like in the in the previous Pluto period in the 7th century BCE, they were just doing mundane astrology where they were looking at the movements of the planets or eclipses or things like that, and then saying that it would apply to the, the population as a whole, to like cities and nations, or sometimes to the king as the leader and the representative of nations, but they weren't like casting birth charts for people. So you go one full Pluto cycle and all of a sudden there's this new technology emerges that has this really amazing um, premise and insight into the nature of the cosmos, which is the notion that um, the alignment of the cosmos at the moment that a person is born will tell you information about the nature and quality of their future and the life that they will eventually come to live, um, which is such a actually mind-blowing proposition. But at this point, this is like a new almost like scientific discovery or, or premise that's just in, in its very early stages here. Yeah, no, it's a huge leap because, yeah, but in the previous Pluto cycle, the, they mainly would have been issuing omens. You know, uh, this planet with this planet next to the moon means the the there's going to be a, a um, you know a drought or or the crops won't do well or the king's going to leave or uh, just sort of basic statements like that. Whereas, like you're saying, one one full Pluto cycle later, and we're doing. The astrology that we recognize today, horoscopic astrology, astrology that really addresses the the life of an individual person. So yeah, it's quite a leap. Right. And you know, speaking of that, but with the omen astrology, it's like we can understand why they they originally started developing that premise because as we saw in our eclipses in history episode that we did in October and no, and was it November and, and December, um, you know, eclipses really do coincide with major changes and sometimes with 
um, the rise and fall of different different leaders or kings or things like that. So we can see why they originally started paying attention to those. Um, but here it had progressed by this point, you know, nearly 300 years later, and they have the basic concept of birth charts. Um, but they don't have the more advanced things that we we use today, like aspects or houses or anything like that. It was just the planets in the signs of the zodiac at this point. So it's like the 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 seeds of that later development that we're familiar with today. Right. Exactly. So one of the last things about this that's important is why it happened. Because part of what happened is there was a shift in terms of the rulers where um, the Persian Empire took over Mesopotamia, and there may have been um, a shift where during the previous Pluto cycle, astrology may have been more of a state-funded activity because the rulers were like using it to their advantage. But during this period, um, the Persians may not have been the Persian uh, rulers may not have been putting as much emphasis on using astrology for imperial purposes, and so there was some sort of almost like democratization of astrology that took place, where all of a sudden now the astrologers are casting charts for individuals, for you know people. Um, in the, like the birth of individuals, so that you're not just like consulting with the king. The astrologers are now consulting with other people. So there's some sort of shift and some sort of democratization of this advanced technology at this time, where it's not just restricted restricted to royalties and the elites, but now there, there's other people that are able to access this technology. Yeah, that's going to be a real classic Pluto and Aquarius theme as we move forward. That's a, a consistent. Uh, pattern for sure. Yeah. The um, democratization. So the last thing is that um, in the 5th century BCE, the zodiac was standardized to be 12 signs of exactly 30 degrees each. And also, they developed ephemerides. And these two technological developments were also part of the precursor that was necessary that led to natal astrology being developed. So there was this um, firming up of the technology, but also the convergence of several different technologies into creating something new. And that's also a theme that we're going to see, see come up as well. Yeah. And I bet they never had to deal with all these memes about, um, um, you know, uh, uh, 13th signs and, and, and what have you. A neat yeah. 12, like it should be. Nophiuchus. No yeah, no for for. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. we'll probably find some skeptic um, cuneiform tablet from like this time period that's like ranting about there being 13 signs and not 12 um, but we'll we'll have to we'll see if the AI can translate that sure um I think there had been 10 actually back going that far back I think it was wasn't it wasn't it expanded to 12 from 10 at some point I mean it's I'm a not whole sure when that happens. yeah okay we, we don't about, need to get this constellations yeah, right. and then the the zodiac becomes a division of the ecliptic and then eventually division of the seasons and the solstices into 12. We'll have to do an episode about that again because it's coming up again as it does periodically every few years. Yep. All right. All right. Let's jump ahead to the next Pluto and Aquarius period, which again, we jump forward something like 250 years and we come to uh, uh, the next Pluto and Aquarius period, which is the period from 185 to uh, 160 BCE. So right in the middle of the second century BCE. So we're still something like 200 years before like the Christian era, basically, at this point. And what's interesting 
and immediately stood out to me at this point um, as a historian of astrology is this is actually roughly the period when Hellenistic astrology as a system is thought to have originated in Egypt somewhere around the middle of the second century BCE, um, especially with the compilations of Nechepso and Petasiris, uh, as well as these other mysterious texts that were attributed to Hermes Trismegistus and Asclepius. So those early compilations, which created the foundation essentially of Western astrology, which is the fourfold system of planets, signs, houses, and aspects. That system basically comes together at this time, drawing on earlier traditions, but also innovating and creating something new through synthesizing those traditions at the same time. Um, so this is super important here that we have, you know, the main distinction is like the introduction of the, the notion of the ascendant and the 12 houses at this time. Right, right. So, okay. So this is even more developed and and I was jumping the gun a bit in terms of going to, to horoscope. Was it horoscopic astrology yet uh, um, 250 years earlier, or was it just sort of reading birth charts in a more sort of crude way in, in 430 to 404? There, there's the whole like debate about that only just because it completely hinges on how you de define the term horoscope. Okay. Because the word has two two different meanings, and if you define horoscope as just like chart as birth chart, then you could say, yeah, they were doing birth charts in the Mesopotamian tradition by 410 BCE. But if you define horoscope using what the original Greek word meant, which is ascendant then they weren't using the ascendant and the things derived from the ascendant like houses until this period around 150 BCE. So um, you know, it completely just hinges on how you def define horoscopic astrology. But okay. I could I could definitely say that just imagine the difference is like a chart where you just have the planets in the signs of the zodiac and you have no birth time right or no no concept of a birth time, which is the earlier Mesopotamian approach at 410 BCE versus um, a chart 200 years later on 150 BCE where you have a birth time and you have the planets and the signs of the zodiac, but you also have the houses and the significations for the houses and how important those are in terms of indicating the different areas of life that the planets manifest. Okay. Oh, that's really interesting. So yeah, um, it's amazing that it keeps popping up during the Pluto and Aquarius uh, eras. Yeah, these, these and, new innovations, as as well as much as we can track them, it's amazing that it keeps tracking with. Right, for sure, and the the mis origins a little mysterious, but there's definitely it's probably happening in Alexandria, surrounding the Library of Alexandria, probably around the middle of this period. So, um, those are some of the things when it comes to that. But at this point, we start to see some other trends emerge, which are important in history. One of them is a thread that we're going to follow through much of the subsequent Pluto and Aquarius periods, which is the invention of paper. And what's interesting is that the earliest known extant paper fragment from China dates to approximately 179 to 141 BCE, which falls very nicely in this period. So um, this is from Wikipedia, but this is the actual like fragment of paper that survives from China that shows that this new technology essentially was developed or had been developed at least by some point around this period. So this is really important because paper, as we'll get into in subsequent periods, is 
super important for a lot of intellectual activities, you know, eventually for like writing books, for the creation of libraries. Um, but also it can be applied to a number of other areas, including like commerce, because from paper you would get eventually like paper money un under one of the subsequent periods. Um, and a Ma number of maps, I imagine, like what the the paper you were just showing now looked like it might have been a map. Um, and, and that's got to change, uh, you know, navigation and what you can do with navigation if you can travel around with maps on paper. Yeah. Um, and as well as other technologies that we'll get to in the very late one in the seven, seven, 1700s. But the important yep. point here is there were other um, things that were used for paper for a long time before this. Like in Egypt, they had developed papyrus that they'd been using for centuries, which is um, they'd used for centuries. And in other instances, in the, like the Mediterranean, they would use the hides or the skins of dead animals to write, right. uh, which is parchment. But um, paper was a really important innovation and development that came out of China because paper um, could be produced much more cheaply and easily and in greater quantities. So the history of paper is actually really important and really interesting and crucial uh, for a number of different reasons, as we'll see in the future. But this was potentially the origins of it around the time of this Pluto and Aquarius period here in the second century BCE. Okay. So also important around this time period is because um, one of the themes that we're going to come back to over and over again is for some reason, the Pluto and Aquarius periods often have to do with China. Um, China keeps coming up super regularly, super frequently in very important ways during different Pluto and Aquarius periods. And this is something that just sort of developed organically as I was researching this. Um, but one of the ones that's important where it always sh already shows up in this period is that um, Chinese contact with the Greek-speaking West is supposed to have occurred somewhere around 200 BCE, which is just a little bit before this period, but it may fall roughly within this period. And then what's interesting is that the Silk Road was opened just after this period, around 130 BCE. So I suspect what happened, and I don't know enough about, and I don't know if there's enough documentation from what I was able to find, but I suspect that this Pluto and Aquarius period may have been really important in terms of increased connections and awareness between um, China in the East and other uh, empires in, in the West. Yeah, I mean that's everything I've understood. Um, I've got some, you know, some books about the Silk Road, but I, I've yet to sort of really dig into them. I'm working my way back there in history, um, but it seems sort of uh, um, it, it certain. It, it seems to go with logic that that you know once once that co contact is maintained, that uh, this ages long uh, tradition of of trade opens up, uh, you know, between the two ends of the extended uh, Eurasian continent. Yeah. When one of them that was really important is that the Chinese had developed silk um, and a really advanced and high level form of silk. And this is something that started being traded very heavily um, with the West and especially with the Roman Empire. Um, especially by about like 30 BCE forward, silk became this highly precious and, and traded commodity in Rome, which was interesting because it was around the, like it was Pluto and Leo was around that period. Um, the, the opposition point in the cycle. Um, 
And Silk is going to become a really important recurring theme over and over again in the future. But that's one of the reasons, and that's one of the things that was exchanged between China and the West was Silk. Hence the name of the road. Hence, yes, the name of the road. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to the next period where we're going to jump forward again about 250 years to the next period, which was between 60 and 85 CE. So this is in the period in the first century, the mid to late first century AD or CD, depending on how you want to call it, um, is our next Pluto and Aquarius period. So um, I was looking at this period and there's a few different things that happened. Um, One of them is I found a quote when I was trying to research the Silk Road, and it said that around 60 CE, the West had become aware that silk was not grown on trees in China, but it was actually spun by silkworms. The Chinese had purposely kept the origin of silk a secret, and once it was out, carefully guarded their silkworms and their process of harvesting silk. So this is from the website worldhistory.org slash Silk Road. So I just think that's, I was trying to trace this down as having trouble finding it, but I think that's just very interesting if that's roughly true, um, that the Romans became aware because they thought it grew on trees or something or had a a, almost like mythological understanding of it. But then they learned at this point um, that it was developed by worms. and that the Chinese were attempting to have a keep like a monopoly on that. Um, so those are things to keep in mind because that's going to come up again in the future about two Pluto cycles later. Right. Right. All right. So that's important. Um, other ones that I noticed, this one wasn't a major Pluto and Aquarius period, but I wanted to mention it because it ties in with our eclipses episode, which is the Great Fire in Rome took place on July 18th, 64 CE, where 70% of the city was burned and then later ended up being rebuilt. Um, So I thought this was really interesting, and I wanted to mention to you, Nick, because there was actually a lunar eclipse just two days earlier before this event happened. And in the chart, um, the planet Mars was conjunct Neptune and Aries and squaring Uranus. And I thought this was really interesting that there was a Mars-Neptune conjunction because this fire is famous because there were um, suspicions that the emperor at the time of Rome, Nero, had started the fire so that he could clear the land and build his own extravagant palaces. Um, And I thought that was really interesting and funny because you and I had just talked about another famous um, fire that was where there, where there was also suspicions about who started it, which was in the 20th century, the Reichstag fire, which also um, happened on an eclipse with Mars conjunct Neptune, as we talked about in the eclipses episode. And the Reichstag fire in Germany was famously, there were suspicions about whether the Nazis started it as a sort of like false flag, basically. Yeah, yeah, and it's especially interesting. Um, um, Nero being the the suspect for the Great Fire of Rome, um, Nero, as it happens, was born with a triple conjunction of Sun, Pluto, and Mars in Sagittarius, all squared by Saturn in Virgo, and he was born four days after a lunar eclipse and ten days before a solar eclipse. So there's already like his chart already has this very direct uh, Plutonian connection in the chart. And there's, there's a connection to eclipses already in his nativity. Um, and four years after the Great Fire in Rome, he would, he would take his own life in the year 68 CE, 
And when he took his life, there was also a Mars-Neptune conjunction in Aries, just like there had been when the, the Great Fire of Rome was started. Oh, wow. That's really yeah. impressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, there, there's so many themes. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not one to go ahead and accuse someone of, of arson, you know, 2,000 years after the fact, but... Uh, Nero j'accuse. I think I think the horoscope condemns him. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. Um, Hopefully, his people okay, don't sue okay. me. Yeah. Yeah, I think you might be beyond the statute of limitations on that one what, what, uh, for for slandering. Yeah, Roman emperors. Let's hope so. Right. Um, so here's the chart for that event for the Great Fire of Rome. There's the Mars Neptune conjunction. Um, the Eclipse had just taken place like the day earlier, and you see Pluto or the moon is like there with Pluto and Jupiter. Um, anyway, so that was just a, a side thing that wasn't like a major one, but that was just a little one that I thought was interesting. I wanted to mention um, another major one or the other major one during this period um, was that um, the first Jewish Roman war took place from 66 to 73 CE which falls exactly within this Pluto and Aquarius period where there was a Jewish revolt against the Roman Empire. Um, and this ended up leading to the destruction of the second Jewish temple in 70 CE, which was like a huge event in uh, Jewish history because that's what then led to the Jewish diaspora or diaspora, um, which so, so what happened basically is that the Romans imposed heavy taxes and were interfering in Jewish religious practices, which led to growing discontentment or resentment as well as sporadic revolts. Um, and according to Wikipedia, it says in 70 CE, at the height of the first Jewish-Roman war, the second temple was destroyed by the Roman army led by Titus during the siege of Jerusalem. The second destruction of the temple was a cataclysmic and transformative point in Jewish history and led to the development of Rabbianic, Rabbianic Judaism as the primary form of religious practice among Jews worldwide. Um, so this and, is really... Go ahead. Oh yeah, no, I was going to say this was during a Uranus-Pluto uh, conjunction, wasn't it? Or at least they're both in Aquarius around this time? Um, yeah, Uranus and Pluto were both in Aquarius, which gives this one an extra umph to it in the way that's similar to like the 1960s, for example, was like a Uranus-Pluto right. conjunction during all of the like unrest and the the um, protests and all of the things like that, or the Uranus-Pluto square that happened in like 2010-2011 during the um, Arab Spring. Yeah, there's often a connection between those those differing you know angles, the conjunction and the square. Um, Titus, the 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 uh, the Roman emperor who who destroyed the temple, um, he was born in 39 CE. Uh, he had a natal square between Uranus and Virgo and Pluto and Sagittarius, so he's born with the square of Uranus square Pluto. And then by the time he destroys the temple, those two planets are virtually in a conjunction in Aquarius. So you can see that sort of the the, the 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 sort of timeline going from the square to the conjunction, his birth to the destruction of the temple, just looking at those two planets and those two angles. Right. So um, this is really important because uh, like the summary about the 
dispersal after that was that following the temple's destruction, the Jewish population of Judea faced persecution and displacement and then was spread out all over in different parts of the world. Um, so I think that's really interesting and important because that you know then leads into all subsequent Jewish history over the past 2,000 years. Um, but one of the takeaways or the delineations that I took from that is sometimes Pluto and Aquarius can indicate cataclysmic events that cause an irreversible shift in intellectual and social trends to the effect that, to the extent that, for example, it said that it um, led to the development of Rabbinic Judaism um, as well as just the displace, displacement and then movement of, of different Jewish communities around the world at that point. Yeah, that's really well put. That's really well put, the way it, it, it just sort of totally reconfigures a whole perspective in society. I mean, massive, massive changes, very common. Yeah, so, and that's one I'm no, it's one that makes me obviously. Then that connects to some contemporary events, but uh, it's one more broadly speaking in terms of like cataclysmic events that makes me a little nervous because I sometimes think about like what would happen if like a solar flare, uh, you know, came out of the sun and just like wiped out like all of our technology or the internet at this time or something like that. Like um, sometimes that whether that's something that can be a larger, not like world-ending cataclysmic event. But in some instances, either like a worldwide thing that happens, um, or something that, um, in some instances, for example, that it, that impacts specific communities, that is like a cataclysmic event that causes um, a disbursement, basically. Yeah, I mean that would that really would throw a spanner in the works if a solar flare just suddenly shut down all our online in, um, information. You know, a lot of things would be undone. And uh, probably most people would be um, completely lost. Yeah, it just made me think of like what's the equivalent of like a cataclysmic event that could happen now, especially to the extent that we're connecting like Aquarius with technology and Pluto sometimes with like the destruction of something. You know, it could be something like that. So that's something to to keep an eye open for, or try to research or look into a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. No matter what, Pluto and Aquarius makes gives a kind of Isaac Asimov vibe to it. You know, uh, um, some, something sort of uh, 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 taking over. You know, like like Tarnas's uh, quote earlier: uh, power struggles, things of that nature, or indeed just a total some kind of uh, calamity, like you're you're suggesting that uh, um, powerfully reconfigures the way society operates. In this case, it would, it would be global society. Right. Yeah, exactly. All right. So that is that period. Um, let's jump forward again about 250 years and we get to the next Pluto and Aquarius period, which happens in the early fourth century in the years between 305 and 329 CE. All right. So the primary one that really jumped out to me at this for this Pluto and Aquarius period um, is right around this time, right at the very beginning of this, um, Constantine became the emperor uh, of the emperor of the Roman Empire, the head of the Roman Empire, and he fought a civil war basically after his father died on July twenty fifth, three hundred six C.E. So literally just like a year into this Pluto and Aquarius period, and his troops pro proclaimed him emperor. 
So Pluto was at zero degrees of Aquarius opposite the Sun at one Leo, and this was just two days before a solar eclipse in Leo that was opposite Pluto when he was proclaimed as Emperor. I think this might have been one of the ones we talked about in the um, eclipse episode. I believe so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. If not, um, yeah. we overlooked that one, but that was a really good one. So the reason why Constantine becoming emperor is important is because what he would do once he got fully established um, about a decade later, and one of those was um, he issued the Edict of Milan, which permanently established religious toleration for Christianity within the Roman Empire in February of 313 CE. So this is right in the middle of this Pluto and Aquarius period. Constantine basically legalizes Christianity, um, which up to this point had been um, against the law and had been something that was even persecuted in some earlier periods. Like, for example, actually, I hadn't thought of this earlier, but this is actually interesting. Like, like Nero, for example, is a Roman Empire who had famously was said to have persecuted Christians very extremely as like a religious group. Right, right. Um, yeah, the, the the Edict of Milan is is not so much a proclamation as a bunch of letters. Um, I think what happens is Constantine meets up with um, uh, Licinius, a, a, a sometime rival, um, and there's there's a marriage happening between their two families. So they're they're meeting to discuss matters of state and religion, and together they dis, they they write out a letter that they send out to provincial governors, sort of basically stating this. So it's. Um, it, it is kind of like, it, it's, it's, I mean, I, I'm not a scholar from this era, but it really is a sort of more popular kind of, uh, um, you know, it's just, it's not like, like one emperor making a proclamation to his, you know, to his immediate subjects, but this more sort of like, uh, um, dispersed and, and, you know, at, at the ground level information sort of spread on the ground level, uh, uh involving letters to, to governors of these different territories. So it's really interesting the way it, it even comes about relative to you know how these things were usually handled. Yeah. So and this one was important because we did mention this one in the eclipses episode where it happened near a lunar eclipse in Virgo just after Jupiter had ingressed into Aquarius where it would conjoin Pluto. So and that's you know the basically during the course of this century. Um, the empire very rapidly became a Christian empire. The Roman Empire became a Christian empire, but Constantine was the pivotal figure and turning point as the Roman Empire, who emperor who became Christian and then pushed for that. So that leads to there was one other event that occurred with Constantine towards the end of the Pluto and Aquarius period, which is the first Council of Nicaea occurred in May of 325 CE. Um, and this is when Jupiter, Uranus, and Pluto were all in Aquarius. Um, and it was interesting because this was the Jupiter return actually 12 years later of when he became emperor. Right. So Jupiter was like in Aquarius and then it came back to Aquarius during the first council of Nicaea. So um, this was an ecumenical council that was the first of many efforts to attain consensus in the church through an assembly representing um, you know, what was supposed to be all of the different Christian groups. Um, so what this did is it established the Orthodox beliefs, um, but it also established which beliefs were to be rejected or were outside the bounds of Orth Christian Orthodoxy, such as Arianism, which was like a 
uh, subgroup of Christians that had some beliefs that like the mainstream like wanted to reject. Um, so Constantine himself was the one that convened the Council of Nicaea, and he was directly involved in some of the different things that occurred during the course of it. Um, so this is very important in setting up. It's not just that he was like legalizing Christianity, but he also made had a major um, impact in terms of standardizing the Christian church and like what things were part of the um, religion versus what things were said thought to be heretical. Right. And um, I mean, just on top of that, just before the first Council of Nicaea in November of 324, he founds a new city on the site of Byzantium, uh, what will someday be called Constantinople and that what will later be called Istanbul. But um, it's, yeah, it's just before that first Council of Nicaea that he first sort of founds the, the, the city isn't built, but it's decided that that's where it will be built, I think, uh, uh, right at that time. Nice. Good point. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then also, this ties in with our previous themes about astrology, but one of the things that's really interesting here, and also immediately stood out about this to me, this Pluto and Aquarius period that lasts from 305 to 329, is that um, the intellectual attitudes towards astrology, as well as the laws against astrology, started to change rapidly after the legalization of Christianity um, during this period, and um, it started to basically turn against astrology, where astrology had been something that was permissible and was done in the open and was respected um, because um, the mainstream approaches to Christianity that were established at this time were antagonistic against astrology because of its emphasis on fate, versus, especially among other issues with it. Um, but the issue of fate versus free will, especially um, like astrology, very quickly during the course of this period and shortly after it started going on the outs in in, in society intellectually at this time. So there was like a sudden intellectual shift against astrology, and not long after this, it started being made illegal to practice. Well, sure. I mean, no one's soul needs saving if they were never responsible for their actions in the first place. If everything was fated, then you know, no one can be saved because they were always destined to do whatever terrible thing they're you know wind up doing. Um, so, yeah, there, there's something about uh, uh, Pluto going into Aquarius. Certainly, seems to have a lot to do with with human awareness of astrology and its sort of attitude towards astrology. I think when we get to the Enlightenment in a few cycles, we'll. Uh, um, you know, we'll we'll see that sort of that hostility to astrology resurface yet again. Um, but um, yeah, um, they're they're gonna if if this if this transit of Pluto through Aquarius means a challenge to astrology, they're gonna have to pry it from my cold dead hands. That's all I gotta say on the matter. Yeah, we'll we'll see. Um, yeah, so I think that's important because it also it has to do with. So one of the themes we can draw from this with like the rise of Christianity is like changing intellectual trends. Right. Like thinking about like an entire empire sort of like having this shift towards Christianity. And sometimes within an individual life, you would see a, a shift because Firmicus Maternus was alive during this period and he like writes an astrological text um, at one point, but then just like a decade or two later, suddenly writes a Christian polemical text. Um, attacking divination and attacking the um, different pagan religions. So it's like in, in, in 
individuals' lives, like people's attitudes towards things start shifting very rapidly. And I think that's one theme that we might take from this is that sometimes there can be rapid intellectual shifts that completely transform society. And if you think about the Roman Empire going from paganism to Christianity, that may be one model to understand some of those shifts. Um, yeah. But also then the rulers sometimes, you know, changing, being involved in setting what's permissible versus what's not, and sometimes even trying to suppress certain um, either views or certain information that's seen as like not permissible for some reason. Yeah. Um, and and you can really fathom just how quickly those changes happen because they if they happen just over the course of a few years, I mean it's 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 monumental. It's it's you know beyond revolutionary how how fast it all seems to happen in these past instances. Yeah. So those are some of the things to draw from from this that Pluto and Aquarius period. All right. Let's move on to our next period where we're going to jump forward again 250 years to the years 550 through 574 CE, which is our next Pluto and Aquarius period. So the primary um, thing that I found, the primary story that I found was really fascinating about this period was right after this Pluto and Aquarius period started, um, the Byzantine Emperor Justinian, who was like the essentially the Roman Empire, Roman Emperor in the East at this point, the head of the Rome. What, 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 you know, because as you said, that's actually a really good, interesting point. You know, in the previous cycle, you had noted that Constantinople was founded by yes. Constantine during that previous period. Well, by this time, 250 years later, um, the Roman Emperor Justinian was ruling from that city Byzantium which had become the the center point of the Roman Empire by this point. Right. So what's interesting is right after this period begins um the emperor Justinian uh sends spies to steal silkworms from China sometime around 552 CE. So the backdrop to this is that um you know, silk was a major commodity. It was it was traded between the Roman Empire and China through um, Persia, through the Silk Road, where there were Persian intermediaries. And the issue at this point was that the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, was constantly, frequently at war with the Persian Empire. Um, so Constantine, so Justinian was trying to find ways around this to like get rid of the middleman and be able to get um, silk directly from China, but also in order to get the price lower because it was like one of the most um, extravagant and expensive commodities that existed basically for hundreds of years at that point. So. Um, what happened is that a couple of monks, supposedly according to the historian Procopius, approached um, Justinian and told him that they, through their contacts, that they could get silkworms and smuggle them out of China and bring them back to Rome. And he apparently approved this, like, 
mission of like state level or industrial espionage and they went and did it and somehow smuggled silkworms according to some of the legends they, they did it in like their canes they were able to put them in like their walking canes or something like that i have no idea how they were able to keep these things alive for that entire journey which is kind of miraculous but somehow they were able to pull it off and what happened is that once they brought the silkworms back to Rome, to the Roman Empire at least, um, a silk industry was set up in Byzantium and the emperors then established a state-run monopoly on all silk production. So um, I thought this was really interesting because one of the keywords here was like um, state-level industrial espionage where they're trying to steal major technologies from each other um, and in some instances were successful in doing that. And then once they had done that, they set up their own monopoly and attempt their own um, to exert control over that for the money and the advantage that it gives them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's really something, especially the way it connects to, you know, what we saw with, with the development of silk in a previous uh, Pluto and Aquarius transit. Yeah, there's something really important about it just because it was the, it was the most expensive commodity. Um, but there's some echoes of that today. And, you know, obviously we'll get to some of that. But just, um, you know, today we have parallels with like um, microchips, for example. And the most advanced microchips are manufactured in Taiwan today. Mm -hmm. um, and now that's become like a subject of, of dispute between like China and the United States. Or um, even AI. I was reading a report recently that there was like a Chinese company that had somehow um, stolen or taken or been able to reverse engineer um, a lot of the AI from ChatGPT and from the OpenAI program, so much so that the OpenAI company banned this Chinese company from um, accessing the, the program anymore. And so there's a lot of like, state and industrial level espionage going on right now. And I think that's going to be a major theme in this coming Pluto and Aquarius period that echoes, you know, that one from the year 552. Yeah. Not to mention, we did have a Chinese spy balloon fly over the continent not too long ago. Um, I forget if that was during Pluto and Aquarius or not in 2023. There was a brief period when Pluto was in Aquarius. I don't re recall if this spy balloon uh, coincided with that. But uh, yeah, there's all kinds of espionage going on. I mean, China's known to uh, to have, you know, sort of uh, uh, deconstructed and reconstructed a number of, uh, you know, for instance, Russian and American military technologies and, and you know, in an effort to recreate them. So that it's something that's been going on for a while. But yeah, I think it's it's all coming to a different level now. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting in these earlier cases, because we'll get to another one soon, uh, a technology like that, but it's like in the older instances, we're talking about a technology that the Chinese developed, like like paper or um, you know silkworms or later gunpowder, which we'll get to next. Um, that then either influences and is transmitted to the West, or or in this instance is like stolen by the West. And so it's interesting um, in some of these subsequent periods, seeing different dynamics coming up again and again, like, um, yeah, I'm just fascinated by that. So this is one I think is important and there's some things we can gain from it, but we'll, we'll come back to that later. Great. Yeah. 
All right, let's jump forward to our next period. Woohoo! Here we go. So um, we jump forward about 250 years to the time frame between the years 795 and 819 CE to our next Pluto and Aquarius period. So what's important about this period, um, there's a few different things. So one of them that's super important, actually, that I'll start with is that um, paper is actually transmitted to the um, Islamic empire during this time. And the first um, paper shop, so paper first started being produced in Baghdad in the year 793 under the caliph Harun al-Rashid. So what happened then is that paper, which was originally developed in China and then transmitted to the um, Arabic and Islamic empire, then replaced very rapidly parchment, which then allowed for the proliferation of books and libraries. Um, so for example, um, Wikipedia, there's a quote, it says, the expansion of public and private libraries and illustrated books within Islamic lands was one of the notable outcomes of the drastic increase in the availability of paper. And also at this time, one of the similar things that occurs is that the House of Wisdom is probably founded in the late 9th or early late 8th or early 9th century in Baghdad. And then there was this great flourishing of cultural wisdom and translations at the height of the Abbasid Caliphate. Um, so during this time, there was a transmission and translation where the House of Wisdom was a library, but also a research institute and a translation project where they were translating very actively all of these different scientific and other texts into Arabic from other languages like Greek and Persian and, um, and Sanskrit and other things like that, um, and creating these vast libraries and repositories of information. But then it caused also this great flourishing of like science and culture and other things around this time. But it was interestingly tied in partially with this um, development of paper, as well as just this Pluto and Aquarius period and this like fostering of, of this intellectual climate, but also of, of it being like, um, magnified at this time of like taking something small and then just taking it to its utmost extreme, um, into the height of this, this period of intellectual, um, sort of celebrated intellectual activity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, uh, you know, it, how how paper can just you know revolutionize uh, the transmission of information and education and other facets of culture. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the other thing that was important during this period in another area in Europe is that um, Charlemagne was crowned as emperor in Rome by Pope Leo III on December 25th, 800 CE, um, which was about five years into this Pluto and Aquarius period. Um, so I found a quote, one of the quotes says, I think it was a Wikipedia quote saying that Charlemagne succeeded in un uniting the majority of Western and Central Europe, and he was the first recognized emperor to rule the Western to rule Western Europe after the fall of the Western Roman Empire approximately three centuries earlier. 
Um, he was the first Holy Roman Emperor, where it was combining both, um, you know, the the political role of a king with also his being crowned by the Pope, and the like combining of these religious as well as political elements of rulership in Europe at this time during the Middle Ages. Um, he also united much of Europe under his rule, and his rule laid the foundation for future European kingdoms and empires, as well as cemented the Catholic Church's influence in Western Europe. Um, let's see, his close relationship with the papacy solidified the alliance between secular and religious authorities, and many historical houses of Europe trace their lineage back to him, or at least claim that their lineage goes back to him. So I think that's really important because it sets the foundation. It's like a continuation of some themes, like some of the Roman Empire stuff that we were talking about earlier, but also some of the th things involving Christianity and its growth and spread, um, but also setting up some of the what would have become eventually some of the monarchies in Europe. Yeah, and it is interesting that we've we've hopped like from Pluto return to Pluto return. We've hopped from Constantine to Justinian to Charlemagne, you know, as if we were just like sort of skipping across a little pond on top of uh, rocks. That that you know, with every successive Pluto return, we get another one of these singularly you know uh, influential and powerful leaders, uh, um, you know, in the in the European area. Um, that that you know really stand out amongst all the other you know people in the in the intervening uh, uh, you know centuries uh, uh, who who you know whose names are not nearly as celebrated as the three I just mentioned. It's it's interesting that they all sort of seem to enter the world stage during this Pluto and Aquarius period. Yeah, and then eventually where this will eventually go is that in our one of our latest Pluto and Aquarius periods that we'll get to happens the like the French Revolution. And yeah. we see like the beginning of like the end of monarchy in in Europe, basically. Yeah, well, we 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 see a guy who really wants to be Charlemagne, who eventually puts an end to the Holy Roman Empire. Although that'll happen, that particular thing will happen once Pluto goes into Pisces. But uh, yeah, we'll we'll see some some definite uh, some definite parallels between um, Charlemagne's era and and when we get to the uh, the French Revolution. Yeah. All right. The last thing about this period that I want to mention briefly is um, the first confirmed reference to gunpowder occurs in a Chinese text in the year 808 CE, and this is um, right in the middle of this Pluto and Aquarius period. And this is important because this would become a very important technology that's going to come up over and over again in subsequent Pluto and Aquarius periods. But uh, as I was trying to trace the history, this is the first for sure confirmed reference to gunpowder in a Chinese text at this time with Pluto and Aquarius. Okay, that's interesting. For some reason, I would have thought it might have been older than that. But uh, okay, that's that's well. Neat. See, there's a lot of earlier. That's one of the issues, especially researching different things like paper gunpowder is. Um, especially due to like the language and stuff. Sometimes there's ambiguity about different things about something, whether it's actually referring to that thing or not. But definitely there were Chinese alchemists that had been working on it. Um, and I had read something that originally it was like referred to as like fire medicine. And so different combinations were being tested and like experimented with for centuries, I think up to this point and some of the previous Pluto and Aquarius periods 
are probably relevant in that. Okay. Um, but this was the one where it was the first confirmed case where it was like for sure a reference to gunpowder by this point. So that's why I noted it here instead of and didn't include some of the more like murky questionable periods. Okay, fair enough. I'm on board. All right. So let's jump forward then to our next period. Mm-hmm. All right, so we jump forward 250 years to the years 1041 through 1063 CE. At least, at last, we're in four-digit numbers. You know, I'm starting to feel a little more comfortable with with the history now. Yeah, now it's we're getting into familiar territory. Only a thousand years ago. Ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So during this period. Um, paper really starts spreading, and paper first begins being produced in Europe at this point in Muslim Spain. So the first recorded paper mill in the Iberian Peninsula in, in Spain basically um, was set up in 1056 uh, AD. So this is again with the evolution and like spread of paper. Now it starts getting into Europe, although primarily still in. Um, Muslim Europe and Spain at this time, um, having been set up way earlier in Baghdad during the previous Pluto and Aquarius period. Right. Um, go ahead. No, no, I was just saying, right. Go ahead. Okay. So, um, yeah, there's things we could say about that, but I'll leave that at there in terms of that spread of paper. Um, now, um, the other thing in this period is. It's one of the things I wrote down is the earliest surviving chemical formula for gunpowder um, dates to 1044, where um, they started really working out the correct levels at this point, where there were some issues with um, the the percentages of the ingredients in terms of making it explosive and being able to use that in a controlled like way or in a controlled setting. So what I wrote down here is from a source that in China, the imperial court took great interest in the progress of gunpowder developments and actively encouraged as well as disseminated military technology. Production of gunpowder and fire arrows heavily increased in the 11th century as the court centralized the production process, constructing large gunpowder production facilities, hiring artisans, carpenters, and tanners for the military production complex in the capital. Um, and just after this period, yeah, they sent in 1083, the imperial court sent 100,000 gunpowder arrows to one garrison and 250,000 to another. So, and this is also slightly after a time period, but um, I found a reference saying that in 1076, um, so just like a decade after this period ends, China forbade the sale of saltpeter to foreigners, which was used to make gunpowder. So, it's not. Can I just ask? Did you I, I, did you have a typo when you said in 1083 the imperial court sent a hundred thousand gunpowder arrows? Did you mean 1063 or 1083? Because 1063 would be in our window, but 1083 isn't. No, it is 1083, and I was just putting it down to give okay. a 
um, idea of how much things had developed in the in, like the immediate aftermath of our Pluto and Aquarius period that like this had become a major military technology by the end of that Pluto and Aquarius period and that also um, the the rulers of China were actively in um, trying to restrict the technology so that it couldn't be like exported to foreigners by that time which gives you an idea of what has what was happening during the pluto and aquarius period that was just a few years before that sure sure makes sense um, since they came into since they came and took the silkworms now they're coming for the gunpowder so hide it yeah i get it yeah and, and maybe that was a good lesson that they that they learned at that time to be like careful about that um, but especially something like this, because this is before guns, this is before cannons, but they the the like explosive and fire potential of gunpowder was always rec already recognized so that they were integrated in, integrating it into like arrows and things like that um, to make them more deadly. Right. Right. All right. So that's where we're at with that period. Let's jump forward to the next one. All right, our next period is the years 1286 through 1308 CE. So during this period, um, there were innovations in producing paper in Italy during this time period, roughly, which improved the process from um, what the Europeans had inherited from some of the Arab uh, paper makers. So this is the point where papers really getting going in Europe, but they're also looking into how they can improve it. So it's like they've taken or, or received this technology, which started in China and then was transmitted to um, the Arabic speaking empire and then eventually was transmitted to Europe. And now the Europeans are starting to find ways in order to improve upon the the production of paper as well as like its um, composition in different and like innovative ways. Um, the most important thing that happened during this period, though, is that's actually the most solid one historically, is that guns seem to have fully come into use during this period in China, during this Pluto and Aquarius period. Um, and this is one that lines up very closely with the Pluto um, ingress into Aquarius. So there's debates about when exactly, but it definitely happened in the 13th century and from the 1280s onwards, guns basically became widely used. So the oldest unequivocal and well-dated gun is the Zandu gun, which dates to 1298, which is less than a decade after this period started. Um, there's another um, hand cannon that's dated to a decade earlier to 1288, which is just two years after the Pluto and Aquarius period started. Um, Another note that I wrote is that according to the history of Yuan, in 1287, a group of soldiers equipped with hand cannons um, attacked a rebel prince camp, and hand cannons were again used at the beginning of 1288. Um, so this is really crucial because basically we have the development of guns. We also have the development of cannons around this time probably as well, where they were for sure in use by um, thirteen, like the thirteen forties. Um, so their development in Aquarius in the earlier period is possible, but for sure guns were in use by this time, and a cannon is essentially just a big gun. 
Right. And, and, you know, I did, this is probably in part um, inspired by the fact that this is the time of the, the Mongol hordes uh, tearing around um, Asia and Europe and the Middle East everywhere, uh, wreaking havoc and, and um, you know, people trying to conjure weapons that'll make a, that'll form a substantial defense against them. Yeah, well, and so this this one's really important because um, reading through some of the history of this was really striking to me because one of the things then that was written about this in the history was just like the destructive power that was suddenly unleashed by this technology at this time and how right. the depict depictions of what would happen in war with people's like body or like faces getting just like torn apart by these new weapons was something that was like completely new and like different in the world and it took war the technology of war to a much different place which starts um it starts changing like strategies that are being used it starts changing like the composition of armies mm -hmm. um it also starts changing like the composition of like power and you know who has this technology and who's able to use it to their advantage versus who doesn't right right is the plague happening around this point? Or it's maybe just a little bit later, isn't it? Um, I'm not sure the exact okay. dates on that. Okay, because I know there's there's that famous story as the plague is breaking out. Um, um, I think the Mongols are, are uh, uh, besieging a, a place in, in, um, in the Crimea. Um, and they, the, you know, people are, they, they've brought the, 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 the plague with them and, uh, you know, they, they take some plague ridden corpses and, and fire them at this fortress using a catapult. And I think that's sort of right around the same time that people start using cannons and guns as, is uh, as that's happening as well. Okay. But I might be, I might be accelerating the timeline on that. So forgive me if I am. Yeah, it's pretty close. It's pretty close. Yeah, I can't tell the dates on that. We'll have to look that up. But um, so with this one, guns super important. And um, around this time, just slightly before it, this Pluto and Aquarius period, um, gunpowder itself starts becoming fully known in Europe. So in, in Europe, one of the earliest mentions of gunpowder appears in Roger Bacon's work in 1267. And this is um, just two decades before this Pluto and Aquarius period. Um, and then similarly in 280, the first 1280. recipes or um, the first recipes for saltpeter are published in the West. So this is like just before Pluto moves into Aquarius, you start seeing the publication of these recipes for gunpowder in Europe and Europe becoming like fully aware of at first gunpowder. Um, but then eventually what gunpowder eventually leads to, which is the ability to use it for, for weapons. Right. right. So um, the Mongol Empire peaked around 1294 to 309 towards the end of this Pluto and Aquarius period, and guns were possibly passed um, to the Middle East and Europe due to the Mongols, although this there's a lot of ambiguity surrounding this, so it's like hard to nail it down. Yeah, yeah. All right. So two other important things happened during this period. One of them is that I found actually super interesting is that Mar Marco Polo uh, traveled the Silk Road from 1271 to 1295 during this Pluto and Aquarius period. And then the book about his travels to China and to the East 
which was titled The Travels of Marco Polo, was published around the year 1300, which very nicely falls towards the end of this Pluto and Aquarius period um, that lasted from 1286 to 1308. So this is really important because this is like, as far as Europe is concerned, one of the first Europeans to like travel um, all the way to the far most eastern provinces of China to spend some time there and then to come back and like actually have a book published about his travels explaining um, the culture and the science and the society and everything that he experienced, which was a pretty big and pretty eye-opening thing um, in the West. Yeah. I mean, instantly making the world that much smaller by by sort of you know, making making that route to a, a, a tangible, you know, place that that people could identify through through his literature, um, and yeah, and obviously those the you know that this is a peak time for the Silk Road in terms of that the whole exchange that's going on, um, you know, in the in the wake of the the whole you know Mongol uh, horde uh, uh, you know thing that's been going on for a while and is still blowing up. Yeah, and one of the things I meant to mention is like I don't actually know why Aquarius keeps coming up over and over again for China, um, and if there's like some base like birth chart somewhere in the distant history that has like a bunch of placements in Aquarius that's important, or if it's something about if it's not China itself per se, if it's something just about um, the East and West like interactions, and and that's why Aquarius keep coming up, or if it has to do with just technology in general and like what societies have more advanced technologies than the other. But I just keep seeing like China coming up over and over again during these Pluto and Aquarius periods, especially in terms of its relationship and interactions with the West. And um, there's something really important there that I wish I understood more. And I hope somebody else might be able to find the answer to or, or research further. Yeah. I mean, I've got some really good books on Chinese history, but I mean, it's dense and it just goes on centuries and centuries. So I'm, I'm working that on that myself. But with with China in mind, it, it just to jump to the the present for a moment. It, it's worth mentioning that um, the the Dem the Declaration of the People's Republic of China on the first of October, nineteen forty nine, at three fifteen p.m. in Beijing, had a three degree Aquarius moon and something like a five or six degree Aquarius rising somewhere in that area. Um, so even if we wanted to, you know. Uh, um, uh, disperse of uh, uh, dispense with uh, um, you know Chinese history prior to the PRC. Um, we're still dealing with an, a political entity that, um, astrologically speaking, has very very strong roots with regard to the sign Aquarius. What was the data on that again? The first of October, nineteen forty nine, three fifteen p.m. in Beijing. This is when the the People's Republic of China is claimed by Mao Zedong. Uh, upon the victory against the Kuomintang. Wait, with Aquarius rising? Aquarius rising, 3.15 p.m. Wow, okay. Well, yeah. and if that's true, and if that's accurate, even if just the moon was there, uh, but also especially if the Ascendant was it's, there... It's pretty documented. It's filmed and everything. You know, It's, it's not a mysterious okay. event. Yeah, it, it okay. pretty much happened there and then. Yeah. Sure. Well, I was just going to say, you know, if there's Aquarius placements in this chart for like the current... Right. entity of, of China and the Chinese government especially, then that usually what happens is there's echoes where placements repeat over centuries. So there's probably a lot of earlier charts for different governments in China and, and different Chinese empires that also had Aquarius placements as well. 
Um, and that's probably part of why we're seeing this echo of, of China and, and Pluto and Aquarius. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm very keen. I think like when it comes to these ancient cultures that have been keeping their own calendars for millennia, be it China, uh, Persia, you know, the, the Ethiopians of Aksum, uh, if they've been keeping a calendar for, for centuries and millennia, then um, this is just gold to astrological research. And again, maybe AI comes in and, and, and helps us really break down thousands and thousands of years of Chinese history into some kind of like discernible astrological study, uh, because that's kind of the mother load. I mean, I can't think of anywhere on planet Earth where we, we have a, a timekeeping tradition that goes back as far as theirs does. And therefore, you know, this is just, the, this is what we need for astrology. We wouldn't be, um, I mean, even today's exercise sort of bears this out where, you know, we're going into ancient history and we only have like a a few sketches here and there of what may have happened, but it's a very different ballgame, I believe, when you when you start looking at Chinese history and going that far back. Uh, it's yeah. much better documented. I've become uh, a lot more interested lately, and actually, this will be another episode I'm planning to do soon, which is on comets and astrology, and, and the Chinese have some of the oldest and most consistent records of comets, um, which is really interesting and helpful sometimes when comparing those with Western records. Um, and yeah, that's going to come up in that episode. So that'll be fun to talk about here soon. Fantastic. Um, yeah. Okay. So Marco Polo, really important. The last thing I want to mention about this Pluto and Aquarius period from 1286 to 1308 is that um, around this time, Roger Bacon's work starting started to establish the basis of the scientific method. Um, and this may have been important and irrelevant around this time as setting up a foundation that would become relevant again in subsequent Pluto and Aquarius transits and periods. And the idea of like science and like what science is and eventually what the scientific method is itself. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Very so interesting. Let's jump forward then to the next period, which is 1532 through 1553 uh, AD. A so mere 500 years ago. A mere 500 years ago. We're actually surprisingly getting close to the end of this because this is only two Pluto uh, eras before our own, but this is also the point where the closer and closer you get to the present um, documented history starts becoming like history starts becoming documented much more so it becomes much more easy from like this period forward to do historical studies and to narrow down especially date ranges and things like that so as a result of that that this period and the next one will have some of our most um history points to talk about um but let's jump into it so the first thing that i have on my list is the spread of the printing press where the printing press wasn't invented during this period. It was invented and developed just before this period, but there was this huge like uptick in the amount of books being printed in Europe during this period, where um, by way of example, to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, in the year 1500, so right at the beginning of this century, just before this Pluto and Aquarius period, there were only 2 million books that were printed in Europe around 1500 CE. Um, but then all of a sudden by 1550 CE, so by the middle of that century and by roughly the end of this Pluto and Aquarius period, it had jumped from 2 million books to 20 million books were printed in Europe. 
And then eventually by the end of that century, by 1600 CE, around 115 million books were printed in Europe. So basically what happened is during the course of this century, and, and which is centered on this like Pluto and Aquarius period between 1532 and 1553, there was just this huge upsurge in the printing of books as a result of the printing press and how much that made it easier to print and publish books compared to prior to this time when if you wanted to get a copy of a book, all books were written as like handwritten manuscripts. So you literally had to like hire a scribe who would copy the book uh, or the manuscript by hand, which was a hugely um, you know, time intensive and labor intensive process. Whereas all of a sudden, once they developed this new technology of the printing press, it allowed them to um, print up you know, hundreds of copies of, of the same book at a time, which just caused this explosion in the proliferation of information. So the primary keyword for this time is the spread of knowledge and the increased availability of printed books and pamphlets facilitated the spread of knowledge and ideas, impacting everything from religious literature to scientific tracts and political pamphlets. Yeah, talk about democratizing uh, uh, technology. I mean, that's it, you know. And 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 really interesting in the way it, it tracks with the history of of paper that we've been following all this time. Exactly, and that's part of why you know I traced that history of paper up to this point because we can eventually see here. It's like we started to see that earlier with like Baghdad in the House of Wisdom and and being in that intellectual renaissance with this like translation project and with them starting to build these huge libraries. But here all of a sudden we've got the next evolution of that, which is like the printing press, and all of a sudden paper is being used on this massive scale to just print like millions of copies of books. And that allowed different people suddenly to have, even in their personal libraries, just like huge collections of books, which is you know, a major difference, a major turning point. Yeah. Yeah. As attested by the, the disaster area behind me. Uh, of books and the, yeah, <laughs> yes. and the nicely curated nicely organized that I have behind me. <laughs> um, all right. So other things in this period, a major one was Nicholas Copernicus and the work of him as an astrologer, as an astronomer. So mm, Copernicus- Freudian slip. Yeah, exactly. I got to keep my term straight. So Copernicus published On the Revolutions of the Heavenly Spheres in the year 1543, which was about a decade after this Pluto and Aquarius period started. And in this book, he argued that the sun is the center of the solar system rather than the earth. So this was a major, major um, moment and turning point in the history of science, um, which triggered the Copernican Revolution. Um, and also was it was a pioneering contribution in terms of the scientific revolution in general. So it's often treated as as this was the start of the scientific revolution, which would then go on for a couple of centuries after this. Um, so initially, um, this was met. Well, actually, first let's dwell on that point. Like this, you know, his discovery about the sun as the center of the solar system was like a, a shift an epoch changing like shift in like intellectual understanding of the cosmos and our place in it that can't really be underestimated 
Yeah, absolutely. With without Copernicus, then you know Tycho Brahe, uh, uh, Kepler, um, Galileo, so forth. Um, you know, they're they're all standing on his shoulders with what they do. Um, so yeah, this is really critical, and it's it's monumental. You're right; it's absolutely epoch changing. So, and initially, um, it was met with resistance, um, and his book was actually forbidden as a result of this. So he ended up publishing it just before his death, partially due to some of these issues. And this is one of the other um, themes that really comes up very strongly during this Pluto and Aquarius period, which is that the church starts trying to control books. So um, one of the quotes that I have is that the first list in 1538, so just like six years into this Pluto and Aquarius period, um, the Italian index of prohibited books um, was issued by the Senate of Milan. And let's see, so there's a, like a Wikipedia quote. It says that the papacy and other cities and states across Europe soon followed the practice where certain books were not printed, uh, could not be printed, read, or owned, and anyone caught doing so was, at least in theory, punished. Further measures included checking texts before they were published and the more careful issuing of licenses to publishers. So this is a period of institutionalized censorship. Um, and um, another quote from the same article says that this became a lasting reality of publishing from the mid from the middle of the 16th century as rulers and authorities finally began to wake up to the influence of printed matter. Fake news. Yeah, well, it's just, you know, because it starts influencing things and it starts influencing religious trends. So, for example, the Protestant Reformation combined with the printing press led to sweeping political, social, and cultural and religious changes at this time. Um, and the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century weakened the authority of the Catholic Church, creating a more open environment for scientific debate. So all of these like same trends and things were like swirling at this time. And one of the themes that really comes up strongly is just that the of the the authorities attempting to control the flow of information and attempting to prohibit or suppress some information. And one of those things was Copernicus's, you know, scientific discovery about um, the sun being the center of the solar system. Yeah, because it, it it contradicted so much of the the accepted wisdom that was dispensed by the church at the time. Right. So, um, Copernicus was added to their list of prohibited books. Um, another Italian author, uh, his his book was added to the list because of vulgarity. And the works of Nico Machiavelli were added to the list for his political cynicism. So it wasn't just like scientific works, but also works that were deemed like inappropriate or that were de deemed as like politically like not appropriate were also suppressed at this time. Right. I was going to mention earlier, I didn't want to bog us down, but you know, Dante um, wrote the Inferno also during a, a, an earlier Pluto transit in, in, um, Aquarius, and he was someone else who got into similar kind of trouble. Like it, it should have occurred to me to add him to the list, um, but yeah, he like he ostensibly entered hell, as it were, in the year thirteen hundred, 
and then you know got into trouble with with uh, the 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 Pope and forces in Rome in 1301. Um, you know, as he as he wrote about his his you know <laughs> entrance into hell, as it were, his his inferno that that whole work. Um, so yeah, that's you know that's someone else who ages before like a whole the one or two how many uh, um, a, a whole Pluto return earlier had had come under you know sort of similar censorship issues, and again for political reasons. So um, yeah, it would have been good to to bring in Dante on that last one. Yeah, that's actually that's super interesting. Yeah, because um, yeah. Bonatti also, like Guido Bonatti, the astrologer who was active around that time, around thirteen hundred, published his massive work of medieval astrology, mm. which was super influential. And then Bonatti, not too long later, shows up in Dante's Inferno, where Dante places him in hell for trying to predict the future. Right, right, with his his head buried in the ground and his his. Uh behind or, or what what is it no the head turned around His something like turned that around. Heads, heads turned around right 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 yeah yeah good um, times good times um so going back to this period so the church is trying to control books um there's other major works a major work on human anatomy was published in the same year as copernicus um and this was huge because he did um dissections which they were like for the first time in centuries, partially due to religious issues, you know, opening up the human body and finding out how it works. And this was challenging um, anatomical theories that had existed all the way since like the second century, since the time of Galen, who was a medical practitioner that was hugely influential in the second century, and has provided a more accurate depiction of the human body. Um, so there was like major scientific advancements in like biology and things like that at the same time. That's really interesting. This is something else I should have maybe added to the list, but I know that a whole Pluto returned later in 1781. Either this book, this very book, or a book like it is approved by Japanese authorities for translation, even though they've shut out all Western contact and, and uh, uh, interaction for a, a few hundred years by that point, but they allow this book or a book like it, a book on anatomy, to be translated into Japanese for medical students uh, for much the same reason. They are, they're also unable to conduct uh, uh, you know, autopsies or things of that nature. Uh, and this is seen as like one of those, like the earliest crack in the breakdown of, of uh, Japan's seclusion from the outside world. So it's interesting that this book would be a whole Pluto cycle prior to Japan finding that same information. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, that's the thing about all these periods is like once you find a major thing that's clearly tied in with Pluto and Aquarius in one period, you can pretty well like start going back to previous ones and tracing it back, and you'll often see the threads of that later development in earlier like successive Pluto and Aquarius periods. And that was one of the things that's come up very strongly um, in this is is like almost in, uh, in many of these cases. I didn't start from like the most ancient times, but instead I like picked up on a thread that was happening later once some of these things had become major developments, and then went back and studied the Pluto, previous Pluto and Aquarius periods and found that they kept coming up during those previous periods that led into them as well. Um, yeah, right, right. Just as a matter of like astrological research and how that sometimes sometimes works. I, I mean, I gotta say, you've done a, an amazing job at, at connecting all these threads. Um, it's a monumental work right here that you've put together. So, well done. 
Yeah. Well, I'm hoping other people can pick up the ball and run with it because I know there's a lot yeah. that I've overlooked and I know there's there a lot of other, is, yeah. other technologies and other things, but at least this gives a pr- blueprint and some starting point for others to pick up the research and, and take it from there. Um, so let's finish some of these other little ones. So one of the major ones that happens during this period was that's separate is the Spanish conquest of the Incan Empire, um, where in November of 1532, um, the conquistadors captured the Inca Empire in Peru, and through deceit and bru- through deceit and brutality, basically, and this marked the beginning of the Spanish conquest of the Incan Empire of the Inca Empire, leading to its eventual downfall and significant cultural destruction. So, I wanted to mention this one because it it had um, it was reminiscence or, or sort of like an echo of that earlier, like the destruction of the second Jewish temple in the first century Pluto and Aquarius period, where sometimes you see like um, the the just like decimation of of an entire people or something like that being a relevant theme. Yeah, yeah, and it, I mean it really continues. There's there's the Spanish conquest of the Incan Empire, but there's also the uh, the Coronado Pueblo conquistadors who march north and and you know take over much of of what we today call Mexico uh, in 1540 in similar sort of brutal fashion, also during Pluto's transit in Aquarius, uh, and even my homeland, uh, Jacques Cartier sails to what will be called New France. Uh, uh, discovers, uh, uh, you know, what will be called Quebec City and what will be called Montreal, uh, um, you know, in the years when Pluto's in Aquarius. This is between 1534, 1535. Uh, Quebec City was called called Montreal was called Hushalaga, a little village there. Um, so yeah, there's, you know, even, even in, uh, I mean, this isn't as much of a, a, a brutal thing yet as, as what the, the Spanish are doing uh, with the Inca or, you know, up in, in modern day Mexico. Uh, but there's a lot of this sort of initial early exploration pre Anglo settling of the American continent or, or exploration of the American continent. Anyway, I don't think it's quite settled yet. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then one other is by this point, when we're getting the 1500s, we start having more accurately timed like birth charts that survive. And I know you had one here with um, Tycho Brahe, who was born yeah. with Pluto and Aquarius, and Aquarius rising with Jupiter and Venus there as well. Right. Um, and his, not just his chart, but also some of the contributions he made to astronomy that built on the work of Copernicus, but also interestingly, were very much about technology and like using and developing and leveraging new technologies in order to make scientific and astronomical advancement. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so um, Brahe's, you know, a really important uh, recorder of information, and he's going to He's going to create the tables, the observational tables that, for instance, Kepler is going to use for all his work. Actually, Kepler kind of steals them in order to do that, uh, uh, or borrows them, shall we say? Um, but yeah, like he's he's a really important uh, uh, sort of uh, a scientific chronicler who who bridges a gap between Copernicus and and Kepler and Galileo. Um, he had an island given to him, you know, so. Uh, Brahe, we we do have his his you know he's Aquarius rising and he's got three planets in Aquarius, including Pluto, um, and um, basically like the he he became so good at what he was doing he was gonna 
move away to a foreign court. He was Danish, and the the, the king of of Denmark wanted so much to keep him in Don- Denmark that he offered him a whole island uh, to to create an observatory, which he which he did. Uh, and this is in 1576. And the day that um, King Frederick offered him this uh, uh, this island. Transiting Mercury was at 18 degrees of Aquarius, which is exactly uh, conjunct uh, Brahe's natal Venus and probably ascendant, ascendant within a couple of degrees anyway. Um, so it's really interesting that, um, and then years later when he would meet Kepler, Mercury would once again be right there on his ascendant. Um, so yeah, sometimes it just takes, you know, little old Mercury to trigger these major planets for uh, big things to happen. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, yeah. So here's his chart for the video viewers where you see his ascendant around 16 Aquarius, his Jupiter at 8 Aquarius, his Venus at 18 Aquarius, and his Pluto at 20 Aquarius. And um, yeah, the use of, of technology. So some of the quotes I have, like he's talked about all over um, different articles about the history of science and different history of astronomy. Um, in the history of the Scientific Revolution article on Wikipedia, it has a quote that says, the first modern science in which practitioners were prepared to revise or reject long-held beliefs in the light of new evidence was astronomy, and Tycho Brahe was the first modern astronomer. Um, so, one of the things it says is, Quote unquote, besides Tycho's specific role in advancing astronomical knowledge, Tycho's single minded pursuit of ever more accurate measurements was enormously influential in creating a modern scientific culture in which theory and evidence were understood to be inseparably linked. So, this is really crucial where there's this shift towards, um, like in, in earlier periods, sometimes like developing philosophical principles that then were used to dictate the scientific theories. And unfortunately, like one of the reflections I had that was really funny was even though like recently, like I've seen some like cultural discussions of like like people like Bill Maher and others who are like Western chauvinists who are like exalting um like Greek philosophers and stuff like Plato and Aristotle and how advanced philosophy is in the West. One of the things I thought was really interesting in the, about that when I was reflecting on this and what happened during the early scientific revolution with some of these these astronomers like um, Copernicus and um, Tycho and, and Kepler is one of the things that they that they why the scientific the early astronomical revolution was important is that earlier philosophers um, like Aristotle, for for example, would set up these conceptualizations, or like let's actually let's start with um, Plato. Plato said that the planets have to be perfectly circular orbits, and he said that par- partially due to like this philosophical premise um, about like perfect circles and things like that, and idealized things in the heavens that have to be perfect. Um, but in setting down that principle that was motivated by by philosophical reasons, um, that actually ended up holding back science and astronomy in some ways for many centuries after that point. And it's not until you get to these other authors during this period that you have people like Kepler, for example, who Kepler's big insight was that the planets 
are not on perfectly circular orbits, but instead the orbits of the planets are ellipses, like like ovals. Um, and that was a huge breakthrough because all of a sudden it meant you could calculate the the movements of the planets more accurately because you weren't being distracted by this false philosophical principle that you're letting everything else dictate. And, and so there's that, or, or in other instances like Aristotle had this philosophical principle that there's no change in the heavens because it's only down here on earth where there can be physical change and up in the the planetary spheres um, there cannot be like change and so as a result of that when it came to the um, concept of comets he, he you know there's an issue there because obviously comets are like these astronomical things that are moving in our solar system that are other bodies that are changing but so partially due to his philosophical issue with that he said that comets are just um exhalations of the air that are coming from the earth and like burning up in the atmosphere so it's just like an atmospheric phenomenon which is obviously false but um many people then followed aristotle for centuries and centuries and it wasn't until like you get to this period that all of a sudden you have people like like tycho brahe and kepler and others that observe like a uh, supernovas and things like that that shows that there's change happening out there and then eventually some people discover that comets for example are you know sometimes periodic like halley's comet that comes around every 70 something years so i just wanted to i had this like reflection about that that sometimes in the west ironically some of the things that is most highly vaunted about like philosophical principles and philosophers actually held back scientific progress for for mm -hmm. centuries even though it also contributed in other ways yeah, um, it's it's a, a real uh, um, sort of mishmash in that way that it's you know sort of partly the foot is on the gas and the other foot's on the brakes kind of. Um, yeah, and and you know Kepler Kepler discovered you know Kepler first realizes that the 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 ellipse cycle of planets uh, in studying Mars. Uh, so again, like you know the, the 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 astrology work I do today, which which really comes down to studying that same cycle. Um, yeah, that, that you know that comes from him from these these major major breakthroughs uh, that are finally punching holes in in these sort of um, stale old and and incorrect uh, uh, ideas that were, you know came from otherwise brilliant thinkers and therefore were were held as gospel but but certainly were not. Yeah, and with with Kepler, Kepler couldn't have had those insights and couldn't have made that discovery about the planets right having elliptical motions if not for the foundation that Tycho Brahe laid as a result of the technological innovations and the focus on setting up these um, astronomical observatories in order to track and record as precisely as possible the movements of the planets and establishing a new scientific standard for the study of the movements of the planets, which then Kepler was able to build on subsequent to that. So that's why this is important with Tycho having this emphasis on Aquarius and having Pluto in Aquarius is that he set up this new um, foundation and uh, advances in technology and his focus on technology was very much at the center of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, all right. So the only other things I want to mention is in 1537 during this period, there was a scholar named Niccolo Tartaglia 
who um, was the first to apply mathematics to the investigation of the paths of cannonballs. Um, and Wikipedia, for example, says uh, this is known as ballistics in his work that was published in 1537, and that his work was later partially validated and partially su superseded by Galileo's studies on falling bodies. Um, so this is important because it was a weird instance where um, some of the earlier stuff with gunpowder that led to guns now comes up again, but now it starts influencing mathematics and developing things like ballistics and other things like that. And you're getting a lot of like the earlier technological developments during previous Pluto and Aquarius periods. Sometimes those technological developments can have unexpected um, outcomes that can influence like science or mathematics or philosophy or other things like that in, in interesting and unexpected ways. Yeah, um, because this isn't Tartaglia isn't just sort of uh, using mathematics. In some ways, he's he's doing physics in a really kind of crude way, wouldn't you say? I mean, it's uh, you know, yeah, uh, uh, tracing the 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 trajectory of of cannonballs, you know, how like how to fire them further and all this. Yeah, it's it's very very early physics in a way. Well, and that's and I don't know enough about this, so I was I don't want to like <clears throat> go out on a limb, and I was going to hesitate sure. to speculate. But yeah, you wonder you know, seeing that if that's like a precursor to like later things, like some of the work that Newton did with like, um, gravity right. and things like that. Right. Um, and yeah. So if some of these different things are, are interlinked. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not a, a, a scholar in the study of the his, history of physics, but it just strikes me, you know, reading what he was doing, uh, in studying that the paths of cannonballs, uh, that yeah, in in some fashion, it, it appears to me he's doing physics. I'm happy to stand corrected if I'm interpreting that wrong, but I don't think so. Yeah. All right. Um, let's see. There were, the only other two things were just that there were two major works on pyrotechnics that were published um, in this period. One, a German work, and another, an Italian work, which just ties back into the earlier gunpowder thing. But I I don't know if it's a major development. Otherwise, it's important here. Um, so I think that kind of brings us to a close for this period, right? I think so. Okay. On to cool. the powdered wigs. All right. So we jump forward to our last period before the present, the one that occurred only a mere 250 some odd years ago, 200, 250 years ago, which is the period between the year 1777 and 1798 when Pluto was in Aquarius the last time before the present. All right, so we've got a bunch of stuff that happened during this period. Um, really quickly, one of the big developments that happened right at the very early on in it is in 1781, William Herschel discovers the planet Uranus, um, which expands our knowledge of the solar system, where all of a sudden it's not just the seven visible planetary bodies, the five traditional planets plus the sun and moon that had been known for thousands of years up to that point. But all of a sudden, this is the first time that our knowledge of the solar system expanded and we realize that there's more planets out beyond the visible planets, which is a huge, huge discovery, both obviously in astronomy, but also in astrology. Yeah. And um, and Herschel does this. I mean, the, the crucial point about this is he discovers the planet using a telescope. He He 
works on lenses himself. He makes his, his own lenses, so he's really an innovator. And it's because of how sophisticated a, a telescope he builds for himself relative to the technology at the time that he's able, with the help of his sister, Carolyn, by the way, who's always a silent partner in this story. Uh, but together, they, they, they discover Uranus using this telescope. And um, yeah, I mean, it, this is a game changer, to put it mildly. Nice. Okay. So that's huge. Um, so major astronomy developments, again, happening, uh, which have been consistent developments that have happened during previous periods. Um, also during this period, we of course have the American Revolution, which is taking place between 1775 and 1783, um, where the 13 colonies declared independence from Great Britain, um, culminating with the, the birth of the United States of America. And one of the things that's interesting about this period to me, aside from part of the Revolutionary War taking place and like the US overthrowing you know this other foreign government that that was um controlling it up to that point but also um we're used to thinking of the US birth chart as having pluto in capricorn because we usually use the the sibley chart which is set for uh you know july 4th 1776 but um you know it's not until after the revolutionary war that most of the government of the United States was actually set up in the system of three branches that's supposed to have different checks and balances and all of that, and eventually the ratification of the U.S. Constitution, that's created during the early phases of Pluto and Aquarius, which is really um, interesting and important that there's something about the, the way that they attempted to set up the democracy that has the stamp of Pluto and Aquarius. Yeah, um, the, the Pluto's ingress into Aquarius in the middle of the Re Revolutionary War, um, what that demarcates is the beginning of France's involvement in the war, which of course is really what uh, uh, helps the American colonists win above you know everything else is uh, French money, French naval power. Um, so that's that's part of you know the the Pluto one thing I was going to say earlier when we were talking about the description when you were reading Tarnas's uh, uh, you know breakdown of of Pluto uh, another thing I would have added to that is is uh, sort of David and Goliath type scenarios you know uh, um, little guy fighting big powerful guy and little guy somehow triumphing over big powerful guy which in a, in a way you can uh, is an you know analogous to the American Revolutionary War, amongst others. Um, so yeah, there's something about that. And also the, the the thing is like Pluto's transit through a sign, certainly Aquarius, is this long, as we said, 20 plus year period um, during which a lot of things can happen. And what's really interesting to me is if you think about France during this period, um, they begin Pluto and Aquarius by by you know spending money on the American colonists. And by the time there's a Uranus-Pluto opposition, about 15 years later, um, the king's getting his head guillotined, in part because of all the money he spent on the American Revolutionary War some 15 years earlier. Um, you know, that's, that certainly it contributes to it. You know, if, if France hadn't been as broke as it was, maybe the revolution wouldn't have been as severe, maybe things wouldn't have spilled out the way they did. Um, so it's an interesting thing to me is is to sort of trace, and this is this is a great period to do it, um, where like you said, where we have a lot more documented history, 
uh, to just if you think of that that era of Pluto being in Aquarius, and that it begins with with Louis the Sixteenth uh, supporting the the colonists, and it ends with basically uh, Napoleon inv- invading Egypt and the revolution going global. Um, then, yeah, it's it's a really interesting bookend in that regard. Um, with regard to with regard to because the French Revolution is the other major major thing that happens during this period besides the American Revolution. Yeah, exactly. And then um, going back to the American Revolution, uh, like you said, I'm, Pluto in Aquarius covers uh, um, the the second half of the Revolutionary War, and then the the years leading up to the uh, Constitution Conference and the the passing of a constitution and. Uh, the electing of and the election and re-election of George Washington as president, um, and it's really interesting because Washington's presidency ends after two terms towards the end of Pluto and Aquarius. And Washington, of course, had the sun in very early Pisces, zero or one degree Pisces, something like that. Um, and so when he dies in 1799, it's just as Pluto has made that ingress into Pisces. Um, making you know Washington's passing and 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 the the sort of the legacy he leaves does have this this twinge of of Pluto involved in it. I'd say. Yeah, I mean that's amazing. Also because you know he famously like could have become king and could have continued ruling um, the U.S. or also could have um, gone for more terms, but he ended up giving it up after giving up power after two terms. Um, and that set a precedent, precedent then in the United States that has been followed up to that point before it was eventually like put into law. Um, right. And recently subverted, but that's beside the point. Um, and well, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's yeah. one of the questions that is going to come up in this current period is like some of these things are being revisited, and there's going to be a question of whether those conventions of like democracy or term limits are going to be continued. Uh, and will survive this Pluto and Aquarius period if they're going to be revived. But um, for our sake in the history part, that's really important that setting up the basis of many of those fundamental things that like like Americans take for granted about the government or about the leadership of the government was really put into place at this time. And that includes presidential term limits, that includes checks and balances between the three. Bill of Rights. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Are there any other? Because that's also the last thing is just not having a monarchy. I think that's the other thing about the American Revolution that's important. That's also echoed in the French Revolution. That's like starts happening during the same period. Is you know going back to Charlemagne and stuff. You have these hereditary monarchies in Europe of people that are in charge of the country because they were born into a family and into a bloodline that has been ruling other places for like hundreds of years. But all of a sudden during this this Pluto and Aquarius period, you have the overthrow of that where people are no longer ruling as a result and leading the countries as a result of um, hereditary monarchies, but instead as a result of like, for example, like democratic um, elections and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, conversely, like you have Napoleon who, you know, he who will sort of rise to power during Pluto and Aquarius and sort of seize power really fully when Pluto's in Pisces. But when he's on his deathbed 20 years after Washington dies, uh Napoleon opines that, you know, the French people really had only wanted him to be Washington, that they wanted him to gain all this power just so he could, you know, 
uh, establish a, a kind of stability and then, you know, hand that power over. And that if he had done that, of course, his fate in history would have been much, much different than how it turned out. Um, so that's, you know, the, it's interesting to sort of contrast, yeah, what happens with Washington between, beside, next to what happens with Napoleon and these two different um, variables or these two different outcomes that can occur depending on the, the actions of the, the central figure. Um, yeah, and I, and I think that's important. We need to expand on explain the French Revolution and other things like that. Sure. So I was focused on the American ones, but it's going back and forth. Right. Um, so I think the U.S. part of that is good um, in terms of what, what we just explained there. There's other things we could go into. But with the French Revolution, you have, for those that are not familiar with that period, like the overthrow of the French monarchy and the ushering in of a period of radical political and social change um, that's that's marked by like the reign of terror. So what are some of the things that people need to know about that period that's important? Okay, well, Bef yeah. The, before the, Napoleon? Before Napoleon. Um, I mean, basically, France is going broke uh, um, in 1789. Um, the, the king, King Louis the, the 16th, has an advisor uh, who's, you know, advising him to, to cut this, ta you know, impose this tax on the, on the aristocracy or, uh, uh, you know, do this measure, take this measure, and the king doesn't want to do it. He's very reluctant to have any change. And he convenes... Uh, the the council of the the the, the estates. There's there's three estates. There's the uh, aristocracy, the clergy, and then everyone else. Um, and it hasn't been convened in nearly two hundred years. Uh, but they they come together to sort of decide on the fate of France. And out of this uh, emerges what we what today is called the National Assembly, essentially the French Parliament. Um, but then the king, you know, has people on his side who who don't want this to come out. So they the, the the military is trying to sort of gather some weapons to contain the crowds, and that's when the storming of the Bastille happens. the The citizens of Paris learn that, um, uh, you know, military forces are going to uh, seize up all the, the the weapons and and maybe turn them on the people, and so the people want to seize the, the the arsenal that's in this uh, prison, this Bastille prison. And uh, that tends to be like this very, uh, you know, Tea Party esque moment in the French revolutionary mythos, if you will, where the people sort of rise up and and uh, uh, take control of things. Um, things sort of spiral spiral out of control. Eventually, at first, they want the the king and queen to be a sort of constitutional monarch, uh, uh, as opposed to being absolute. Um, and uh, at first, the king and queen seem, at least on the surface, amenable to that. But then the king and queen try to escape France, and they're caught, and then they're they're seen as traitors, and the whole thing turns very dark. Um, all the countries around France, Austria and the different sort of German states and Britain, all become very hostile to this revolution, and uh, they're very suspicious of it, and they're threatening war, and uh, you know some of the, the, right. the you know Br Brunswick and Austria are sending uh, the, the armies in, and so yeah, the, uh, the the French revolutionaries get more and more paranoid and more and more suspicious of traitors, and the the factionalizing. You know, the uh, in politics today we have the terms left wing and right wing, and this emerges a, right out of the French Revolution in the National Assembly, where you had sort of the more radical left wing people, well, what we today call left wing people, sitting on the left side of this this you know this this room where they meet in, and then the more conservative 
uh, folks on the right side. And that's why we have a left wing and right wing. That's why that terminology is in our vernacular. So that literal, that, that creation of the, the, those two factions that even today we can identify really easily, uh, emerge out of this environment. Uh, one thing leads to another and, um, uh, the king is sentenced to death for, for treachery. Uh, he's guillotined. Uh, then the, the, the great terror has, has sprung up. People are so paranoid that, um, People are denouncing each other and thousands, tens of thousands, I forget the, the figure, but a whole lot of people wind up losing their lives in the guillotine because they're uh, accused, rightly or wrongly, of, of being enemies of the state. Um, and things come the, to a- The guillotine itself is actually really interesting yeah. for the French Revolution and, and where it becomes like the most popular and well-known. And it's kind of like an interesting symbol for this, this period of Pluto and Aquarius of literally like a- a device or a technology for like ending somebody's life um, that's used and is, is becoming really popularized during this period. Um, I think that's probably like kind of an important like symbol to some extent for Pluto and Aquarius, at least during this period. Yeah. And ironically, you know, King Louis the 16th even offered some suggestions on how to improve it. I think he suggested like a tilted blade or something like that. But he actually, like, you know, earlier when he was still king before he was overthrown. Had, um, yeah, made helpful suggestions to Joseph Guillotin, who was, uh, you know, inventing this machine. To this day, the Guillotin family is, or the Guillotin family is, is horrified about, you know, the, the machine being named after them 250 years later. Um, yeah, I just found a date. It says on the 10th of October, 1789, physician Joseph Ignace Guillotin proposed to the National Assembly. The ca that capital punishment should always take the form of decapitation by means of a simple mechanism. Yeah, and then he presents it to the king, I think, in January of, of uh, 1790. Like two months later, he, he brings it to the king and demonstrates it. Um, the, this is the thing, is that, you know, first of all, it's kind of funny to us now, but the guillotine, in, indeed, according to guillotine, was supposed to be, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a humanistic, a, a, a compassionate method of, of taking life, of, of executing someone. It was supposed to be, <laughs> you know, humanitarian. Um, and uh, it's quick. Right, because it's 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 quick, but I mean, it's also you know quite quite terrifying, especially when it's done in front of mobs of you know hundreds or thousands of people who are braying for blood. Um, yeah, so it's 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 done very quick. I had another point to make, but uh, um, yeah. Uh, oh, oh, so yes, this, um, this Maximilian Robespierre. Like the, just just this period's known as the Reign of Terror, right? The Reign of Terror, uh, um, going from. Um, 17, 1793 to 17, and then going into the Great Terror in 1794. They're sort of, um, you know, consecutive periods. There's the Terror, and then it gets really intense when uh, Danton and then Robespierre are, are, are taken out. The, the execution of Robespierre ends the Great Terror. He's one of the, 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 the people who's on the, the Committee for Public Safety, which is a, a 12-man little committee that basically runs the whole revolutionary effort. And they're largely responsible, at least for sentencing the people who get sent to the guillotine, uh, if not outright denouncing them. Robespierre, who's the most obvious sort of visible figure on the, the Committee for Public Safety, ironically enough, when he got involved in politics like four years earlier, uh, he did so uh, in order to uh, campaign for the ending of the death penalty. He was a real anti-death penalty guy. And then uh, a short four years of Pluto and Aquarius opposite Uranus and Leo, and the guy is... Um, 
you know, on the committee that's sending uh, thousands of people to the guillotine. Um, so that's the, that's the atmosphere uh, um, in this whole thing. And that's the thing about uh, the, the Pluto transit in Aquarius. In the, in the 18th century, during this whole period, in the 1790s, I think from 1793 to 94, 1792 to 94, Uranus and Leo comes into opposition to Pluto in Aquarius. And so you get this really tense standoff uh, uh, between these two planets. Um, and I think at some point even Saturn comes in to make make a T square to the two of them. And uh, yeah, this is this is this uh, exactly corresponds with with the the terror and great terror periods when um, the French Revolution go, goes completely you know off the rails and uh, is is you know leads to a lot of uh, um, a lot of chaos and death and and strife until you know Napoleon comes along and and kind of helps straighten things out. Yeah. So, um, but the main thing is just, it was like a populist movement. It, it has the effect of like overthrowing the monarchy and starting to create something that's not a monarchy, um, for the first time there. They also create like the uh, sort of like a citizens, almost like bill of rights or something like that as well. Yeah. A declaration of the rights of, of man. Yeah. Uh, which they do in the summer of 1789. And I think that in turn inspires the bill of rights, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so yeah, you know, there's, there's these, uh, uh, you know, really grand ideas at first. I mean, when the declaration of the rights of man is, is put forward in August of 1789, yeah, people like Robespierre and Saint-Just, who a few years later will be, you know, calling for blood, they're still, they're still, a you know, a very, um, idealistic and, and innocent part of this whole project. It's amazing how, the whole sort of paranoid thing takes hold so quickly and, and, you know, yeah, the, <laughs> makes, makes people crazy, frankly. Right. And so people were being executed because they were suspected of being like against the revolution. And exactly. so that was like yeah. a lot of the energy surrounding that period. Yeah. So and then there was, there, there were armies, there were foreign armies that like every border invading. So it wasn't just a sort of a phantom fear, you know, there was, there were grounds for all the paranoia, but still it's, it's a hell of a situation. Right. And then also you had mentioned that earlier, but I meant to draw that point that like, meanwhile, all the actual other monarchies around Europe are like watching this and the kings and queens are like horrified because they just saw the people like rise up and then decapitate the king and queen of France basically um, and overthrow the monarchy. So all the other monarchies start like really worrying about this, whether that could happen to them as well. Exactly, exactly. Um, it was really, you know, the 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 whole thing is that the rise of absolute monarchy, you know, which which was how most of Europe was run. The French Revolution was just trying to sort of take that down a notch, like the British had done, uh, you know, during their civil war. And and eventually the glorious revolution, where the you know the British a century earlier had had their own tussle between uh, uh, you know Parliament and and uh, monarchy, uh, and and France in some way was just trying to recapture that. I mean the American Revolution was also inspired by that. All right, so all of that's happening with the French Revolution, but then um, later in that process, and one of the things Austin and I talked about in the year ahead forecast that there's like this last gasp of monarchy when Napoleon comes along and and basically reinstitutes the monarchy right after the French Revolution and is initially successful in kind of um 
undermining uh, the democratic, like using democracy in order to like reinstill a um, monarchy, basically. Yeah, I'm. You know, again, again, we go back to to really understand Napoleon. We we have to go back to Pluto's ingress into Aquarius uh, in 1778. When nine-year-old Napoleone Buonaparte from Ajaccio, uh, Corsica, uh, gets sent off to, to France to attend a military school, um, that journey really begins there with a Corsican kid who just gets sent off to a, a foreign country to attend, uh, you know, school, and he doesn't speak French. He's got to learn how to speak French, and he, uh, because he has a facility with math, he winds up uh, in the artillery corps, which is kind of exclusive and elite. And that serves him well once we get into the French Revolutionary War. Uh, because of all the war paranoia, a number of French generals have been sent to the guillotine on suspicion of treason. So there's quite a few job openings, so to speak. Um, and that period I was talking about in 1793-94, that's right at the period in 1793 when Uranus is conjunct Napoleon's Leo son and Pluto and Aquarius is opposite his Leo son. It's right at that point that uh, Napoleon and his entire family find themselves basically refugees in France. They've been exiled from Corsica over some political turmoil there. And Napoleon has to re-enlist in the French army, basically just to like pay to survive, pay for his whole family to survive, because no one's employable other than him in the midst of the, <laughs> the great terror going on. Um, and so, yeah, one one military success leads to another, and eventually he has his whole you know campaign in in Italy and then Egypt and so on and so forth. Um, but it really starts with um, for him, it starts with the Pluto ingress into Aquarius coinciding with him being sent off to to France for the first time, and then eventually that Pluto over the next fifteen years reaches its opposition to his son, and that's when he uh, becomes a Frenchman, you know. Uh, again, you know, Pluto is transformative, but it's also transportative. It, it, it takes you from one world and puts you in another. And that, and that whole thing about like sort of uh, um, making big things small and small things big, taking this little kid from Corsica and making him, you know, the most par powerful emperor who's lived in a thousand years. Um, right. Yeah, re so, really extraordinary. So, um, major takeaway with him, though, is like they manipulated the democracy if i understand correctly in order to essentially like get him put him in positions of power and one of my takeaways was that um part of the pluto and aquarius theme is like tensions between democracy and autocracy and that aut autocratic leaders attempting to establish control through the illusion of democracy um like like holding elections but then controlling the results um, to what extent is that, you know, how did he get himself like into power aside from initially winning battles as, as like somebody that was a commander, um, and then being elevated, but then eventually there was some ways in which he finally became like an autocrat. Yeah. Um, you can almost exactly demarcate Napoleon's career as just a military figure uh, to his life as a political and military figure by looking at the transit of Pluto through Aquarius until the tr transit of Pluto in Pisces. Uh, when Pluto goes into Pisces in 1798, uh, Napoleon goes to Egypt, uh, a rather ill-fated campaign to, to become the new Alexander the Great and lead the French army to India. It doesn't uh, go as planned. 
Um, although he does um, sort of facilitate the invention of Egypt, um, Egyptology as a as a uh, as a school of thought. Um, the Rosetta Stone is discovered um, by by scholars he brought there. Um, but ultimately, that doesn't really work, and he comes back from Egypt and immediately takes pl- um, part in a military coup, of, essentially, um, overthrowing the Directory, which was corrupt and ineffectual, and sort of the last result of revolutionary democracy, if you will, in France. Um, and it's when he sees his power in this coup, Pluto has fairly recently made its ingress into Pisces. So the process you're talking about, like when he sort of goes back on the democratic principles uh, uh, you know, exalted in the French Revolution. That's in part because Pluto has now left Aquarius, and it's in Pisces, and it's a new ball game. While Pluto was in Aquarius, then these, you know, these principles were still, you know, held in high regard and and thought to be well, worth preserving. Okay, got it. Um, yeah, well, I guess part of the theme, though, is that sometimes there can still be back. While well, well, sometimes there's major changes, and in this instance, in the Pluto and Aquarius period, like moves towards democracy, there can still be um, steps back or the last gasps of autocratic or monarch, in this case, um, systems, monarchical systems can still happen um, so that uh, it's not like a completely clean break all the time. Yeah, exactly. Um simple as that it's it's uh you, you know i mean things things have to go on to that next stage anyway you know um the uh, napoleon says when he takes power you know the revolution is over and i am the revolution um so that, nice. that's that yeah i mean eventually pluto leaves aquarius it goes into pisces and and we're on to the next stage yeah okay so i think that's good for that um the other thing that happened during this period is the haitian revolution took place during pluto and aquarius right yeah, and this is related to the French Revolution, and um, even later on, you know, related to Napoleon. Uh, Napoleon eventually has, um, you know, one of the major leaders of the revolution, Toussaint Louverture, um, you know, has him sort of um, kidnapped, uh, sent to prison, where where he dies in really miserable circumstances. Um, but there is something, you know, really empower- important there. In some ways, the Haitian Revolution is uh, the most important of them all. Uh, because it's a nation of slaves against their their you know enslavers, and it's the first and only nation. Excuse me. <coughs> it's the first and only nation uh, founded by former slaves, or or you know up uh, by, for, formed in a slave uprising, and um, they're they're acting on the principles of the you know they've they've heard about the Declaration of the Rights of Man, and so they're acting on those principles when they have their uprising. And um, it's interesting. <coughs> God, I'm really sorry. Um, it's interesting that um, Toussaint Louverture um, has um, um, a major Pluto transit as he's becoming uh, the first non-white governor general of, of Saint Domingue, which is you know the, the island today we call Haiti or the country we call Haiti. Um, so yeah, I think I, I put his data up here. Um, Toussaint Louverture was born the 20th of May, 1743 at night um, in Haiti. And he becomes the first non-white governor general of Saint-Domingue on April 1st, 1797. Transiting Pluto and Aquarius is square his natal sun at 29 Taurus and opposite his natal Saturn at 29 Leo. Um, 
it's a short-lived governorship, but you know, it's it's the beginning of of um, you know, like I said, he'll be he'll be captured and taken back to France. But uh, uh, from then on, that the, the country of Haiti is is you know founded and and on its way essentially. Okay, that's amazing. And okay, so that's really important that there's different revolutions like going on all over the place during this Pluto and Aquarius period. Um, there's also a bunch of major technological um, advancements and developments I noticed. Um, in 1796, Edward Jenner develops the first smallpox vaccine, revolutionizing preventative medicine. Um, also in 1796, Alessandro Volta invents the first true battery, establishing sustained electrical currents. Um, the Watts steam engine is developed in 1785 which is an improvement of the steam engine, um, which ended up then spurring the Industrial Revolution, uh, transforming manufacturing and driving economic growth. Um, there's also a textile industry boom, where innovations in textile production um, with inventions like the spinning jenny and the power loom significantly increased efficiency and output. And this is combined with, in 1793, Eli Whitney invents the cotton gin. Yeah. Um, and as a Go ahead. The, oh, just the the cotton gin is. I mean, these are all important. Obviously, um, these are all huge. Um, the cotton gin is invented, I think, in South Carolina, and it really changes the face of American slavery uh, because it it really makes the, the 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 cotton industry in in the South a viable thing. But you're going to have to have far more slaves now to pick far more cotton. Because the cotton gin can process that much more, so it just it it intensifies everything, but it intensifies also the 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 need to have slave labor to to you know match this new level of industry that's that's being created. Um, okay, so sometimes the the like negative repercussions of like technological developments. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of these sort of anal. I mean, that's a really extreme example of of a lot of similar things that are happening because of the industrial revolution. And how it's changing labor and changing how people, you know, uh, sustain their lives. Uh, but yeah, the cotton gin is particularly, uh, you know, odious for this reason. It, it, that it, I mean, you know, yet you had slavery obviously in America before that, but it was nothing like the, you know, the the scenes we know of um, of you know lo loads of people out in the the cotton fields picking cotton under really inhumane um, circumstances. That doesn't happen until the cotton gin is invented. That that level of slavery in in that number and in, in that severity. Yeah, well, that was actually one of the themes that I saw that kept coming up with Pluto and Aquarius sometimes, which was like either the unintended um, consequences of technological developments, uh, or sometimes people like scientists inventing things for the sake of inventing things without thinking about. The ethical implications, and this is something that came up first earlier with like the development of gunpowder and guns and things like that, and then those just being used as a mass weapon of war um, to cause you know huge amounts of destruction from something earlier that were people like alchemists like in, um, mm. exploring different forms of medicine or thinking that they had developed a form of medicine or something like that. Um, so that's a theme that's relevant here and then that'll come up again later. And that's also a theme um, in one of our last Pluto and Aquarius periods, things from this period that I'll get to in just a minute. Right, right. 
So there was also a period of urbanization and social change where rapid industrialization led to the growth of cities, population shifts, and the emergence of new social classes that was going on. Um, and there was a major, major development with air flight. And this is one of the most fascinating ones to me because it ties together um, some previous threads of not just, not even just paper, but also silk. Right, right. Yep. So um, the Montgolfier brothers were paper manufacturers by trade. Um, and this was like a profession that instilled in them a deep understanding of materials and their properties. Um, and it was a family business, so they had been raised in it. So, you know, the, it wasn't like they just sort of discovered paper on their own. This was something that had been developing over generations in their family. Right. And so at one point they start um, seeing and developing an interest in lighter than air phenomenon in the 1770s when they noticed that heated air could rise and lift lightweight objects. So they start experimenting with different um, fabrics suspended over fires and watching as they inflated and rose. And one of the things that's interesting about this to me is that they experimented with different materials like silk as well as paper and studied the effects of heat and um, the lifting capabilities and things like that before this eventually um, this eventually culminated in 1783 with their first successful hot air balloon flight. Right. There was there were a few flights. The first flight, I think they put a monkey, a duck, and a chicken in in the the you know in the basket just to be sure. Not unlike, you know, we've used to sit monkeys and dogs in space before people go in space. That sounds like a um, setup for a good joke. Yeah. Like a, a <laughs> it's a great punchline, yeah. A, a monkey, um, a dog, and a chicken like walk into a hot air right, balloon. Right, right. <laughs> right. Um and then and then they 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 tested it with with a person tethered and then a person untethered. Um, I know Benjamin Franklin and possibly even Thomas Jefferson witnessed this because this is the same time that they're negotiating, uh, you know, the Peace of Versailles that ends the Revolutionary War. They're in Paris negotiating the end of the American Revolutionary War when uh, the Montgolfier brothers are doing these demonstrations. Definitely, Benjamin Franklin wrote about witnessing it, and I believe Jefferson did as well. But I'm I'm less sort of certain of that. Um, the other thing is the the Montgolfier brothers. Uh, before deciding to use hot air, they had experimented with uh, gas, with um, um, not helium, but um, hydrogen, possibly hydrogen or something else. I think hydrogen. Um, they experimented with it, but decided it wouldn't work. But then there was another scientist named Jean Charles, Jacques Charles, um, who uh, started developing alongside them, uh, uh, trying to develop a balloon with, with using uh, uh, gas instead of hot air. And uh, he also had a successful demonstration in 1783, a little after the Montgolfier brothers. And um, it was, it was um, Jacques Charles's uh, hydrogen balloon that was used in 1794 when Uranus is opposite Pluto. Remember, God, Uranus is the god of the sky. Um, it was a, um, a hydrogen balloon that was used by the French Revolutionary Military for reconnaissance work in the Battle of Fleurus in uh, June of 1794, just as the Great Terror is at its peak, uh, the French military win this amazing battle that, that they don't expect to win. And um, a hot air balloon, a, a, a hydrogen-filled balloon, uh, is used with you know a, a pilot on board um, doing reconnaissance work for the military, and it really works out nicely. 
and they use it in other subsequent battles in these wars as well. Um, so yeah, and that's that's peaking again in that that Uranus Pluto opposition that you get in 1794. Okay, in the middle of it all, yeah, yeah. So um, this was huge, and especially the Montgolfier brothers, their historic flight sent shockwaves across Europe. Uh, capturing the public imagination and sparking widespread fascination with the possibilities of air travel. Um, and in terms of the legacy and impact, their invention had a profound impact on science, technology, and culture, and their hot air balloons opened, opened up new dimensions of exploration, allowing scientists to study the atmosphere and gather data from previously inaccessible heights. Um, so this was huge, and it set the foundation basically for the all the future like aviation industry. Um, and I think that's going to be a recurring theme when it comes back to this eventually is is flight and things surrounding flight. Um, where now we're getting into the next era, which is like space flight, basically. But um, uh, there's something about that that's like an important probably reoccurring phenomenon and it's just weird how it tied in with their story especially the thread of paper that had gone back centuries definitely yeah yeah that that was the thing that was so striking to me um and you're right silk after paper as well it's it's amazing the way that all comes together yeah and that's part of the theme and that we'll have to pay attention to with this period which is it will involve tying together technologies and um countries and other things that were important during previous Pluto and Aquarius periods, and then uh, combining those or recombining those in interesting and, and new ways that are appropriate for our own era and where we're currently at in human history. Yeah. Yeah. So the last thing I wanted to mention about this Pluto and Aquarius period, um, and this is one actually originally that Lisa Scheim had found that she mentioned on the last year ahead forecast for 2023 that we recorded over a year ago. Where she pointed out that the the writer Mary Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein, was born with Pluto and Aquarius conjunct the midheaven in her chart, and the actual <clears throat> like story of Frank Frankenstein and some of the metaphors underlying it are super super tied in with Pluto and Aquarius. I think in ways that I think are going to be very illustrative. So yeah, let me- it, it, it's basically the first science fiction you know, work of science fiction. Here's her chart. And one of the things that's interesting is once you start getting the modern period again, you start having birth times for people. So that's one of the things that's really interesting about her um, life is the fact that we have a relatively solid birth time for her. So she was born with cancer rising and the midheaven at 27 degrees of Aquarius and Pluto at 29 degrees of Aquarius. Um, so Pluto in Aquarius directly conjunct the midheaven. And she comes up with this idea for um, Frankenstein, and part of the core theme underlying it is the idea of a scientist who's consumed with the idea of creating life itself. Um, however, the result is not the perfect being that he envisioned, but instead a grotesque and hideous creature that is then ostracized by its creator and by society. Um, so here's. Ironically, I asked the AI, you know, which is ironic because like some of these themes are coming up now, but I asked the AI to write a summary of Frankenstein, and here's some of the primary things that are important. So, driven by the death of his mother and a fascination with life and death, 
the scientist abandons everything for his scientific studies, and he becomes consumed with the idea of creating life itself. So in a secluded laboratory, the scientist Victor stitches together body parts and animates the creature through an unspecified scientific process. Horrified by its appearance, he abandons it, leaving the creature alone and confused. Uh, forced to fend for itself, the creature learns to read, speak, and understand human emotions through stolen books and observations. He longs for acceptance and companionship, but his monstrous appearance triggers fear and rejection wherever he goes. Unable to find acceptance, the creature seeks vengeance on Victor for abandoning him. The revenge spirals into tragedy, resulting in the deaths of Victor's younger brother William and his adopted sister Justine. Um, Guilt-ridden and grief-stricken, Victor attempts to atone by creating a female companion for the creature, hoping to quell his loneliness. However, horrified by the potential consequences, he destroys the second creature before it is complete. Enraged, the original creature vows revenge and disappears. The story culminates in, in the Arctic, where Victor, pursued by the vengeful creature, becomes consumed by his own creation, and both perish in a final confrontation, leaving a message of caution about the dangers of unchecked ambition and the consequences of playing with God. So, um, this is really interesting, and some of the main novels that are explored, or some of the main themes that are explored in the novel are, one, the dangers of scientific ambition— um, where Frankenstein's story serves as a cautionary tale about the potential dangers of scientific progress when pursued without ethical considerations. And I think that's a really core Pluto and Aquarius theme. Um, let's see, two, responsibility and accountability. Victor's refusal to take responsibility for his creation forces him to confront the consequences of his actions, leading to his ultimate demise. Um, and finally, the last thing I want to mention here is just it's interesting that Mary Shelley was born towards the end of Pluto and Aquarius and the end of the scientific revolution. And part of the focus here was on the ethical implications of scientific advancements, as well as the potential dangers and responsibilities that come with pushing the boundaries of knowledge in the attempt to create artificial life. And I think some of the parallels there with today, and now we're starting to see as we're on the beginning of Pluto and Aquarius, the very cusp of like the emergence of AI already at the beginning of this period, I think some of those parallels are um, hard to ignore. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Mary Shelley's interest in that, that Pluto on her midheaven, um, you know, her mother basically died giving birth to her or shortly after giving birth to her. Both of Mary's parents are very sort of notable writers, sort of legends in their own right. Her father's William Godwin, um, who's who's a famous sort of revolutionary political writer, and her mother Mary Wollstonecraft um, is you know one of history's first uh, feminist authors and writes a really important revolutionary text on 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 women and women's freedom. Um, so she she's got this amazing kind of pedigree, and both her parents, her um, William Godwin was born the third of March, seventeen fifty six, in England. Uh, Mary Wollstonecraft on the twenty seventh of April in seventeen fifty nine. And both of them have natal Pluto and Sagittarius square Uranus in Pisces. And this is very interesting. Mary's born with the Sun conjunct Uranus and Virgo on both of their Uranus half-returns. And 
uh, when she writes Frankenstein in 1816, you know, she's with, she's married to Percy Shelley, the poet. She's they're, they're also with Lord Byron, uh, another famous poet. And this whole era in 1816, um, when she writes Frankenstein, um, basically in a sort of contest or, or game along with the other writers um, while they're all in Switzerland, uh, that all occurs while Neptune and Sagittarius is scoring Pluto and Pisces, kind of in the same place where her parents had the, the, their natal Pluto-Uranus squares. Um, so there's a really kind of interesting generational transference between these the, you know, older intellectuals, her parents, and Mary and her, her friends, of, you know, her, her circle of very talented poet friends. Mm, okay. One of the things I noticed that's really important, or I thought was really impressive, is that we actually have the date for when she first came up with the idea for Frankenstein, yeah. and um, Saturn was actually a- around 23 degrees of Aquarius, and it had recently stationed. So Saturn and Aquarius basically had recently stationed near her midheaven Pluto conjunction when she came up with this this idea, basically. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so I thought that was pretty cool. Um, okay, so Frankenstein, the idea of, of also like creating an artificial life, uh, having it backfire and other things. So I think that's good for this period, and that's, that's pretty much it for that period, right? There, is there anything else we've meant to mention? No, I mean, I could go on about Mary Shelley. Uh, shortly before she had the, the dream of, of Frankenstein, she had given birth to a child who died soon after. So I think yeah. some of that, some of that desire to, uh, you know, the, the, the inspiration to write about resurrecting life or creating life in that way, I think is also inspired by that. Yeah, no, I mean, she had with that Midheaven and Pluto conjunction in the eighth house, she had an incredibly, and other things too, like Mars is opposing Pluto in her chart, but she had a very, incredibly difficult and tragic life in many ways where death was like a really recurring theme for her. So her chart would make for an interesting study more broadly. Um, but, but for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right down to the fact that her mother died giving birth to her, you know, like it kind of starts there and, and just doesn't stop. Yeah. Um, she, she sees, you know, her husband, Percy Shelley die, a, a few of her kids, uh, Byron, of course, goes wandering off to Greece and gets killed in the Greece uprising. So, like, yeah, everyone yeah. she knows, everyone she knows, kind of meets a tragic end. Sure, but I think at least there's something about what she described there. Even though we're talking about um, the 1800s at this point, there's something eerily prescient about her writing that about creating artificial life in that time period that suddenly become eerily prescient for today as well. And some of the underlying themes that came with it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, right at the same time that that she um, is writing Frankenstein, Byron uh, has just had a daughter born. You know, he's not with the mother or anything, but a daughter of his is born, and this is Ada Byron, who go on goes on to be um, a really important mathematician who contributes to the future of computing and robotics. Um, so I'll just throw that. Yeah, there's there's all kinds of like really interesting dynamics to that whole story that um, spill over into contemporary uh, science and art. Yeah. All right. Well, that brings us to the present and to the future. So we are now currently um, at the very beginning of the next Pluto and Aquarius period, and Pluto 
first dipped into Aquarius last year in 2023. It first moved into Aquarius in March, and it went in very briefly for a few months, and then Pluto retrograded back into Capricorn. And now, later this month, Pluto's about to enter Aquarius again. Um, so I forgot to give the data for this. So we're recording this on Monday, January 8th, 2024. We started at what, like 2.45 or something? About that. Maybe 2.40, yeah. PM in Denver, Colorado. And um, later this month on January 20th, Pluto's about to go back into Aquarius. It's going to retrograde back out this summer in Capri- and go back into Capricorn. But then later this year in November of 2024, Pluto's going to move into Aquarius again, and then it's going to stay there for the next 20 years, all the way until 2044. So um, we're looking at another Pluto and Aquarius period. So I'd like to spend this last section summarizing some of what we learned and some of the takeaways from some of the past ones, um, and then see if we can take from that and anticipate how some past trends from history are becoming or will become relevant again for us today over the next 20 years. So, um, things that I wrote down in notes of summaries. One, the utilization of technological advancements in order to have power and control. Um, In addition to that, the power that technology, knowledge, and information has. So these are all themes that were present in many of our previous examples. Um, that I think are are clearly becoming relevant again today, right? Oh, well, yeah, no question about it. All right. Um, other than that, let's see. So the uh, another one that was important is vast repositories of information that are under the control of centralized authorities. Mm. Um, how how developments in technology can shape and transform society in different ways. So we saw that with um, paper, we saw that with uh, gunpowder, we also saw that with things like um, how the printing press and the increase of printing in books also affected things during the Reformation and started causing um, changes in like religion and things like that. Sure, or inventions like the cotton gin creating you know slavery on a scale the world had not quite seen. Right. Um, Another theme that kept coming up is uh, technological transfer from foreign or um, relatively speaking like alien cultures, which has a profound transformative impact on society, politics, and power. Um, So, for example, you know, the technology that's already developed by another culture, like with the Chinese spending centuries developing gunpowder before Europeans inherited it around 1300, um, or even like um, silk and silkworms and how that had been refined and developed in China for millennia before being eventually transmitted or or stolen by the West. Um, There's also possibly something about the idea of what it means to be foreign or alien in general becoming relevant again both in the sense of AI, the emergence of artificial intelligence, and creating a new sentient species on Earth, which is essentially what, if if people, if scientists are capable or are successful in creating artificial intelligence or artificial general intelligence, 
that's what that would be is like creating an, another sentient species on earth um but even aside from that maybe even alien life being found even in microbial form in other places in our solar system or perhaps beyond even the recognition of animals as being more sentient than humans often give them credit for as new AI technologies are developed to help us better understand how they communicate. There's something about like the idea of foreignness, of alienness, and alien technology, and the exposure to that that seems like it's a recurrent theme of Pluto and Aquarius. And it's something I'm starting to see discussions about over the past year um, that are very um, suggestive, I think. Yeah, I mean, that would be pretty wild if AI taught us how to communicate with dolphins and octopus and, and you know, primates, perhaps. Um, and um, yeah, yeah, I mean, just, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things that are seeming science fiction, but, you know, are probably on the verge of becoming real. Yeah, it's something I've been thinking about recently, which is just like, in different places in the animal, animal kingdom, if you look at them collectively, it's like animals have reflect so much of the full range of human emotions in different ways um but humans don't often um focus on that or like most humans don't often fully think about the implications of that um but it would be interesting because one of the primary barriers is communication um but even if that's not the main thing you know one of the things that's happening this year is they're launching a spaceship that's going to send a probe i think to europa one of jupiter's moons that's um like an icy ocean moon and then they're going to send a probe beneath the ice to see if there's microbial life um down there and that's supposed to land i think in 2030 but even something as simple as that which is not really simple but it's not at the scale of like discovering a whole alien civilization. But if we, during the next 20 years, discovered something as simple as finding that um, basic forms of life existed somewhere other than Earth, that would have a huge, like, earth shattering um, effect on our conceptualization of ourselves, of humanity, of our place in the universe, and other things that would be similar to and sort of approaching what happened with Copernicus publishing you know his book and showing that we weren't at the center of the solar system discovering a new form of life would be the modern equivalent of something tantamount to that because it would show that human life is not the center of the solar system or of the universe but that there's life elsewhere as well and it would sort of like decentralize us and move us away from the center of the universe but instead show that we're like one of many that's revolving around something larger yeah and talk about making small things big and big things small um you know finding microbial life like that would um yeah easily be as revolutionary as as what Copernicus unleashed on the world um you know three pluto cycles ago um sure. you know as, also that would the, the 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 sort of uh, elephant in the room also is um, who knows I mean I don't I don't know what to make of it but there has been far more sort of serious discussion of of unidentified flying objects and what their origin might be and and that whole conversation has become um, well it's certainly a lot more normalized I mean it's you know it's 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 out there there's there's you know it's it's being discussed in congress you know before cameras and everything so 
Um, who knows what emerges out of that, if any answers? But um, that would easily fit the 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 you know the the sort of the 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 list that we've compiled in terms of the kind of impact that that um, this transit of Pluto and Aquarius could reflect in you know terms of changes in in human consciousness. Yeah, for sure. And I don't know about that either. Like, I don't know whether to take some of that stuff seriously or not, or mm-hmm. if it's legitimate or not. Um, but certainly, obviously, like having any other signs of, you know, actual intelligent life or like civilizations out there besides our own would also have like a huge impact on our, on our world and on society, um, yeah. as well as science and, and a number of other things, religion. Um, so that's, you know, a possibility as well that we'll have to see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, other themes. One of the ones that was recurring, obviously, at this point is like the role of China and China and technological transmissions is like a major theme that kept coming up over and over again. And we've already mentioned how some of that, you know, it's really notable to me that just in the past um, few decades, you know, China has risen to become a global superpower again. And it's really notable that that's happened and it's come to this point, like right before Pluto goes into Aquarius. Um, so that now a lot of the focus is on like, you know, um, the increasing tensions between like world powers like the United States and China and whether there'll be conflict and as well as like um, tensions over technologies and things like that going back and forth between the two. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think you might have mentioned with Austin that uh, Xi Jinping and Vla- Vladimir Putin both have Saturn-Neptune conjunctions in their natal charts. So when we get to 2025, yeah, you know that's the final ingress of Pluto into Aquarius, um, and it happens the same time as the Saturn-Neptune conjunction in Aries. So I do think of 2025. You know, when when Uranus goes into Pluto, good and proper for good, um, and all that other all those other transits are happening. Um, we'll definitely hit a new chapter in the history of China and the history of Russia. Um, Saturn Neptune has always been very promising for both, and and yeah, uh, you know it's in the nativity of both uh, both leaders. So I, you know, I and we talked already about the Pluto transit just in terms of the the People's Republic of China and and how it was um, glared when when the ascendant was in Aquarius, the Moon was in Aquarius. So that Pluto transit could be you know. Um, certainly hitting the People's Republic, the you know the political structure in China, um, you know, sure. right in the middle yeah. of the chart, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, you and I have done that episode previously, one of the major episodes in the history of the podcast about like Uranus, the Uranus return of the United States when Uranus goes right. through Gemini, and how that's coincided with. It's only happened three times in the past, and the first time it was the American Revolutionary War. The second time was the Civil War. And the third time was World War II, so that's one of the issues, um, you know, that's concerning. Since Uranus is about to move back into Gemini in 2025, and as an additional cycle, that's like a secondary overlay, which is: is the U.S. going to have another major conflict or another major war that's on the level of of those other three that have happened so far in its history when Uranus has gone into Gemini? One of the, you know, and that's going to be happening at the same time of Pluto and Aquarius. And one yeah. of the things that's actually interesting about that is just that Uranus and Gemini is going to be trining Pluto um, 
several yes. times off and on increasingly close over the course of the next decade. And I think that's really going to accelerate a lot of the technological developments and a lot of the developments with communications and other things like that over the course of the next decade that were already indicated just by Pluto and Aquarius that's going to be supercharged by Uranus going into Gemini. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um that that and that's a feature that you know we didn't have um, um, quite in the same way uh, um, you know the, the the last few times that Uranus has been in Gemini. Um, they were co-present, like during the Revolutionary War, Uranus was in in Gemini while Pluto was in Aquarius. But the Pluto ingress came a little too late for there to be a trine in the air signs like that. And of course, uh, before long, Uranus zipped into zipped through Cancer, zipped into Leo, and made an opposition to that Pluto. Um, so that trine with Pluto from Uranus and Gemini uh, is a is a, a feature that that distinguishes it from past Uranus transits through Gemini and the wars that they've coincided with. Um, and of course, the big message when it comes to that that transit of Uranus through Gemini and and the U United States being involved in these major conflicts is they it, in all three instances they led to the United States essentially becoming a new country in a way certainly redefining itself in some really fundamental way uh the revolutionary war created the country the civil war centralized the country and the uh the second world war and the cold war uh, turned this you know reluctant sort of protectionist uh, uh nation isolationist nation into a global superpower um, virtually against its will, virtually by circumstance. Um, so yeah, there's 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 something about the, the country's own transformation that coincides with Uranus and Gemini, except this time, like in the 1770s, it's happening while Pluto's in Aquarius, while the while the mood for for sort of popular power, for people power is is um reaching its zenith and and um the revolt against sort of authority or or dictatorial power is is you know at its most potent. Um, yeah, and one of the things about that with the U.S. that's actually really fascinating about the Uranus Pluto trine is that um, the U.S. has Uranus in the Sibley chart at eight degrees of Gemini, and that's actually roughly um, where I think the exact trine will be going exact between Uranus and Pluto. Um, starts going exact when Uranus gets to around eight degrees of Gemini, and Pluto gets around to eight degrees of Aquarius. So that adds an interesting additional um, level of an intensity that it's going to be happening at the most intense point in the Uranus return of the United States. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's one thing. All right, moving on to other points. Summary points. So, new technologies like paper allowing for an explosion of information and a diffusion of new ideas. So, I think AI is probably going to be playing this role in our time, although there may be additional things involving um, how information is transferred and proliferated and consumed in terms of innovations in the form factor of the role that paper played in previous times to whatever the equivalent uh, to that is in our time. Um, you know, something about that, something about the form factor and the way that information is accessed and is spread around um, being important to this time period. Yeah. Yeah. We can see that happening pretty easily. 
Yeah. Um, but, but it's like, it's going to be taken to some new level and it's going to have a completely transformative effect on our culture, um, through that technological innovation. And we can for sure see some of that, like the cusp of some of that, but there's some parts of where that's going to go that we probably, at least normal people, um, that aren't like futurists aren't even anticipating or don't realize, you know, is going to, how that's going to change society soon. And, and, on all the different levels in which it'll change things. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. Other themes. I, I've been saying to people, sorry to interrupt. I've been saying to people that a hundred years from now, people will look back at 2025 as the beginning of the 21st century. Not unlike that we think of 1919 or 1920 being the beginning of the 20th century. Um, you know, where it's really like a very visible demarcation in history where uh, suddenly, everything that preceded it seems, you know, like like it belongs to another age. You know, even this period right now. We that's a good point in a number of different ways. Although that makes me think of something I was I um, saw recently, where somebody said that um, in terms of like archives and research, there's going to be this demarcating line in history that starts with 2023. And it's because everybody's starting in, in every field is starting to use AI in order to augment research and do research with things, but also in order to generate um, content of what's being created in different fields. And as a result of that, um, there's going to be like this, this um, sedimentary layer where you're going to have to like there's going to be a fine line between things that were generated by AI or could have been and were influenced by that innovation versus things that were produced prior to that time mm. that had to have been only produced by humans. Right. Um, and it was an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. I mean, imagine future wedding photos will be taken, you know, in some kind of AI generated uh, um, simulation. Uh, you know, <laughs> wedding, wedding photos with, you know, the parents and the, the, nieces and nephews and what have you, but you're in front of, I don't, you know, who knows what, uh, um, a giant planet, some kind of futuristic, you know, backdrop. I mean, what have you? Um, yeah, it, it's, it's going to change a lot of things. I mean, you know, culturally as well as everything else. Yeah, for sure. All right. Other things, um, governments trying to control the flow of information. Um, so governments and entities attempting to control or suppress the spread of information and ideas, although often failing eventually, although being successful for some periods of time. Um, so these attempts to control the flow of information, for example, in the past coincided with the church's list of prohibited books. Mm. Um, so there may be other instances where there's like institutionalized censorship attempts or attempts to suppress new discoveries or ideas with extreme methods that ultimately fail because the powerful insight that the idea or discovery has about the nature of the world. Um, so thinking back to like Copernicus's discovery about the sun being the center of the solar system and how that was suppressed initially, but that eventually, you know, it couldn't be suppressed forever because it actually was true and it actually pointed to a property of nature that was that was real. Um, not to like put, you know, ourselves, not to center ourselves too much, but I think also of things like astrology and some of the questions 
we've talked about on forecast episodes lately about we've been in this period of like a, a renaissance and a height a bump in the popularity of astrology over the past several years and whether we'll go into a, a downturn or a period of suppression again at some point before too long um, but if something like that happened you know it couldn't last forever because um, of the fact that astrology does reveal an actual property of nature and that the validation of that is sort of like inevitable despite both historical or any current or future attempts to suppress it that's right the truth is revolutionary so um i mean that's that's something i i could imagine happening unfortunately uh but it makes it all the more important for us to do the work that we're doing um you know regardless of what sort of becomes us because somewhere down the road uh, it's it's work that can be you know developed by others once the the smoke clears so to speak and um, it's too vital and it's indeed it's it's absolutely a property of nature and therefore there's there's truth there there's something to be learned and discovered and it can only be suppressed for so long so um, yeah what we're doing is is really important even even if someone does you know sort of put the boot on us at some point um, the, the the work will live. Yeah, and and what we've seen also is that sometimes things that are started or or done in previous cycles don't come to full maturation until later ones. So you know it may be setting a foundation for certain things that aren't fully discovered um, and put together or advanced to the next level until the next cycle. But it's at least um, doing or creating something that ends up having a legacy that lives on and, and grows and evolves. Yeah, I mean, in this is instance, um, this time, unlike the 1700s, we're not going to have Uranus opposite Pluto in Aquarius, uh, Leo. We're going to have uh, Pluto opposite Uranus in in um, Pisces, Virgo. Um, so it's a very, it's going to be a very sort of different experience, and that'll be the the culmination. But that'll come after we've gone through whatever Pluto in Aquarius has in store for us. Yeah, for sure. All right. Other themes: government and major entities attempting to steal technology through espionage. Um, I already mentioned, you know, some of the things that are going on between different companies like East and West that are trying to steal AI technology between each other, or um, other things like that. Um, another one tied in with that is governments and entities attempting to have a monopoly on technology and the power, advantage, and influence that technological monopolies give. We've seen that with gunpowder guns, cannons, silkworms. In modern times, it's focusing on things like computer chips, uh, microprocessors, artificial intelligence, and other things like that. And that will, you know, perhaps be the central um, struggle in terms of technology over the next twenty years. Is that whoever controls and has um, a monopoly on those technologies ultimately could have just like an immense amount of power in our world uh, and could set the tone for other countries around the world at the same time. Um, all right. Old technologies being merged and refined to create new weapons of war. Um, so how developments in technology can be used to kill other humans and advancements or innovations in new forms of death and destruction. So here I'm thinking about things like drones, robots, artificial intelligence, lasers, and cyber warfare, um, all of which 
may be taken to new and sort of extreme heights as we were already seeing that happening with many of those. Um, but I'm sure, you know, we'll probably see some pretty terrible things in terms of that reach that type, those technologies reaching the height of their sort of like full maturation over the course of the next 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, obviously drones are already a thing, um, you know, even just on Twitter, you know, there, th- these, these, uh, uh, threads come up sometimes where, you know, you see drone footage of, um, either their Ukrainian jo- drones, uh, shoot firing on Russian soldiers or Russian drones firing on Ukrainian soldiers. Um, it's, it's taken the, the sort of the experience of war into this whole new level. I mean, I remember, you know, 30 something years ago with the first Gulf War, it seemed miraculous that, um, we were watching a war on TV on CNN. Uh, or before that, the, the you know the 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 overthrow of uh, the Panamanian dictator uh, uh, in '89, which happened on live TV. Um, Noriega, no, not Noriega. He was uh, Nicaragua. I forget the guy's name. Uh, but the 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 Panamanian dictator taken down on live TV, which was during also the the last Saturn Neptune conjunction, which is something else that sort of comes into the mix here uh, when it comes to sort of like the spreading of information and new ways of disseminating that. There's this perfect storm in 2025 of all these things coming together. Uh, not just Uranus and Gemini, not just Pluto and Aquarius, but this Saturn-Neptune conjunction, uh, which I think will coincide with like a really, you know, heavy-duty um, moment of clarity on, you know, on the world stage. Um, some kind of everyone seeing things for the way they really are. I don't know if uh, clar- clarity is the keyword I would use for a Saturn-Neptune conjunction. I, it's, it's one I would use. Um, okay. um, but yeah, I mean, amidst all the the subterfuge that's going on, but but there does there does tend to be you know revelations amidst. Mm, okay. Yeah. 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 Um, and you know, with this, the current technology and stuff for warfare, there's going to be questions like, <clears throat> you know, one of the questions currently are things like, um, should w- once artificial intelligence is developed and employed in the battlefield, can it be um, used? Can autonomous machines should they be given the okay to like kill humans without any human oversight for example is going to be like one of the major questions and like ethical implications over the course of the next 20 years um in terms of how that is the answer to that question and how different governments you know employ those technologies basically the terminator you know i mean that's that's where <laughs> you know the kind of super soldier uh uh character uh, minus the time yeah. travel, but but yeah, that's that's you know that's the kind of thing that seems to be developing. Yeah, so some of those questions are going to become real, like not science fiction, but like actual things that we're talking about and are being debated in terms of the ethical implications. Which then leads me into the next one, which is the experience of scientists creating something through a love of science, but then having their creation used to destroy things. So similar to we've talked about, you know, gunpowder and things like that in the past, but also sort of similar to Lisa's example with Frankenstein and some of the the um, things that are raised in that story as like an allegory, but the ethical implications of scientific advancements, as well as the potential dangers and responsibilities that come with pushing the boundaries of knowledge. Um, and a related thing theme that kept coming up was doing dangerous or risky things in the name of science and out of a love for wisdom, which is kind of an Aquarius thing and kind of a Pluto thing. 
um, where Aquarius can be doing something just out of curiosity or out of a love of science to see if it works without necessarily thinking about the implications. Um, so I mentioned guns, but even like hot air balloons to some extent and the riskiness of like sending a human up um, into the air to see if it works and, and having it be successful. But then some of the things that sometimes come out of that, you think about that like culminating eventually not too long after with like World War II and other successive wars where airplanes become like a major source of, of death and destruction. Yeah, I mean, we we were talking about the first hot air balloon, you know, manned flight in September of 1783, and it was less than two years later, June of 1785, that the first person was killed in a hot air balloon accident. So, uh, you know, even before it found its military application. Um, so, yeah, right off the bat, you know, some of these technologies uh, um, do do you know take take victims with them. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. Another major theme of Pluto and Aquarius was the development of the scientific method and experiment experimentation as a major theme throughout. And I think there's going to be something about that in terms of that seemed like there were some successive developments in the development of like what the scientific method was and how it should be carried out that were refined in some of these periods. Um, and I'll be curious if there are some major advancements when it comes to that as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, another major theme was tensions between democracy and autocracy, and a theme that's starting to emerge that's relevant to the present, but also came up in the past, was like autocratic leaders attempting to establish control through the illusion of democracy, holding elections, but then controlling the results. And I know that's an issue that's happening. Like this year, for example, there's like a record number of different democratic votes that are supposed to take place. But in some places where um, there's autocratic rulers in charge, those, you know, supposedly democratic elections are not necessarily going to be actually, you know, fair and free elections. So that's going to be um as well as just the tendency that we've seen in the past few years that's a little bit startling of autocratic rulers coming into prominence in different countries and some of the um, democratic processes being eroded or being removed entirely. Um, it's a little startling seeing that, and I, I wonder if that's also part of the Pluto and Aquarius sort of era that we've, we're moving into is, is an era where that's more prominent. And if we'll see things that are similar to like the last Pluto and Aquarius period where there was this tension and this um, dragging back and forth between the forces of democracy and autocracy um, that at times turned like violent. Yeah. And also quite sort of a another term I would introduce into this is class struggle, uh, which wasn't as big in the American Revolution, where it really was just one specific social economic class that was doing the rebelling, um, or that at least that the rebelling was serving. Uh, but in the French Revolution, it really did become a kind of class war. You remember I was talking about the three estates, the, the, the aristocracy, the clergy, and the people. Well, that third estate, um, you know, it, it was common up until fairly recently to, to refer to the developing world as the third world. And that third world idea comes from the idea of the third estate, the people in the French Revolution, the masses, the ones who ultimately did rise up and, and um, send a lot of uh, aristocrats and generals to the guillotine. 
Um, so there is an element, I think, of class struggle that comes with Pluto and Aquarius, because it really is about the sort of the masses. It really is about the the third estate, or if you will, the third world. Yeah, that makes sense. And sometimes the mass is rising up, and in other times the attempt of um, the elites to like suppress the masses from rising up. Well, yeah, yeah. The the revolution, the counter revolution, you know, the terror, and then the white terror, uh, so on and so forth. Um, the French Revolution, the Rev- Russian Revolution, they 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 had these same sort of forces. Uh, civil war winds up being fought between these two factions and or several factions and. Uh, different factions will win out at different stages of the of the struggle, if you will. So another major theme is cataclysmic events that cause an irreversible shift in intellectual and social trends. Um, so that was the one where the major example was the destruction of the Second Temple in Jerusalem. Um, and we talked about a, a little bit in terms of what some modern scenarios could be that would be similar to that. Um, you know, we just had covid a few years ago and seeing that sometimes these very like ancient primordial disaster type scenarios that we kind of think that we're immune to as modern societies that are things of the past um finding out that things like that can still happen and become very relevant and can um you know have this huge impact on the the world collectively um and at all these different levels i think that was a big eye opener that you know, major things like that can still happen. So it might be a good idea to think about um, some of that as, as scenarios for what a Pluto and Aquarius type situation could look like. Yeah, I mean, the you know, COVID broke out with with the 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 you know, stellium and Capricorn of Saturn, Jupiter, Saturn, Pluto, and then Mars coming along as well uh, in Capricorn in short order. That was. Um, you know, those were the transits that that uh, introduced COVID to the the you know the the masses, and so with with Pluto going into Aquarius, yeah, very easily could be you know something of that nature. Um, I think if COVID taught us one thing, it's that we're woefully unprepared for anything more serious than COVID to to hit us. You know, I mean that was bad enough. Um, yeah, if it were sure. any more serious, it would be devastating. For sure. Um, yeah, and Pluto going through an air sign could be relevant there since that was very relevant with Saturn going through Aquarius and this like airborne disease or like pathogen or airborne um yeah, just thing that was that was taking place. Um so that's relevant. Moving on, flight seemed to have been a, a significant theme, especially with the last one with the first human flight taking place during the last um, Pluto and Aquarius period. So during this one, themes like space flight, the commercialization of space flight, um, and having that become more and more increasingly common. Like obviously, we're already there and we're already heading in that direction. Um, but also, even like local air flight potentially becoming more common as well. I saw some things that are supposed to happen this year that I thought were very interesting about. Um, like planes that can be flown locally or or not planes but drones um, they're drones you can fly you can like it's a giant drone that you sit in and you can fly and you don't need a pilot's license but you could conceivably fly it you know to the grocery store or to your girlfriend's house across town or what have right. you um <clears throat> yeah it's basically a giant drone that you fly and and they seem to be uh, coming into the market 
Yeah, there's something major about that, and that combined with not just Pluto and Aquarius, but also Uranus going into Gemini soon, which is also like a transportation type sign. Uh, really, you know, seems to point in that sure. direction. Yeah. Um, other themes, one that's coming up recently that may be relevant from history, but seems important is like tensions with globalization, um, where being in an increasingly globalized and interconnected world, but at the same time, we can see countries pulling back from this recently and trying to bring production of some things back home. Because in the 1990s, um, there were a lot of different trade agreements set up internationally where part of the belief in like the West, like in the United States, was that if trade was set up with places like China and some of the um, production was like outsourced to China, that it would open up and make things more democratic in different countries where uh, democracy wasn't as common. But then it turned out that that didn't really happen. And now, especially after COVID, um, some countries saw the problem with having their supply chains dependent on this whole easily flowing like international order. So now a number of countries are bringing the production of certain things back um, to their own countries. Like, for example, the U United States is trying to, is building a um, uh, what is it, a processor plant in Arizona for um, micro microchips basically. And there's other countries that are doing similar things. So I'm wondering if that's part of what we're seeing with Pluto going to Aquarius is maybe some of those, um, challenges to the more, the more globalized, like interconnected world order, even though up until very recently, it seemed like inevitable that we're moving towards a more, you know, fully integrated and interconnected world. Yeah. I mean, even before COVID, um, Every president since H.W. Bush has been moving the United States further and further away from this global vision, actually. Uh, it has gradually been receding. And, you know, I dare say if it weren't for the, the Israel and Ukrainian conflicts, um, you know, it would have receded all the more. But, you know, that's th those, those things have kept the United States a little more in, you know, uh, uh, a little more involved in for foreign affairs than they, I think they otherwise would be. Um, but yeah, the trend right now seems to be, you know, largely towards deglobalization, or at least through, you know, uh, um, sort of uh, um, weaning off the 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 the, it, the global influence of the United States, you know, on on, on both parties, you know, um, the United States no longer having the same interest. A lot of that global order was being kept in place because of the Cold War, you know. Um, it was really a security measure. The U United States used its naval fleet to patrol the oceans, keeping trade safe for everyone. And in return, everyone kind of agreed not to go communist. And, um, you know, that worked for a good long while, but the United States is no longer sort of invested in, in uh, you know, uh, patrolling the seas like that. And, and even if they wanted to at this point, they can't. They've, they've changed their naval fleet. Um, so that yeah. era is largely over already, you know. Um, I mean, maybe part of what we're seeing then is something that gets talked about sometimes which I feel like is sort of propaganda purposes, but maybe symbolically there's a way that makes sense here. The notion of it, us moving towards a multipolar world where there's like other major superpowers rather than just like one superpower of the United States that, that controls or everything revolves around just because symbolically like Aquarius is a much more social sign where, where things are distributed more evenly 
Um, and Pluto represents power, so maybe part of Pluto and Aquarius is a greater distribution of power, and maybe that's really the core, ultimately symbolically, of what we saw with like the French Revolution or the American Revolution was a distributing of power more evenly rather than having it just be in the hands of like a singular individual. Yeah, that would make sense, and that that you know that's easily the way that the Pluto and Aquarius transit could could manifest. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of the other global superpowers, you know, may not just have what it it takes to to you know survive the the century. Really, um, you know, China and Russia have really dismal demographic structures that, um, you know, will be hard to maintain. And so, you know, if if not them, uh, tomorrow's global superpowers could easily be, you know, I don't know, Vietnam or or Argentina or Turkey or Brazil. Um, you know. Um, not necessarily Russia or China. Um, it could it could go in a lot of different directions by the time this transit is over. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. So um, one of the other last few notes I wrote was um, we've come as far as we have as a species, partially through socializing and the power of the exchange of information among different people in, in different places. And how that mutual exchange and back and forth over the centuries has driven progress and technological and scientific breakthroughs. Um, if we were more isolated than that, transmission and those breakthroughs would not have happened. This is where the Aquarius theme comes in as a social air sign. And I think there's something really important about that um, that will both you know, maybe see a contraction of that, but also an expansion of it in some ways. Mm. Like what happens when we become even more hyper interconnected through the internet and through other means like that, um, you know, can our progress scientifically at least or in other areas like that expand even faster? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, as well as just being an insight about the nature of technology and why humans have done as well as a species because of our social nature, which comes partially from Aquarius as a, as a symbol. All right. Um, Pluto is going to oppose uh, the Pluto and Leo generation and the Pluto and Leo generation who were born like the baby boomers in the 1940s and early fifties. That generation is still very much in power in different you know, parts of the world. And so here with Pluto and Aquarius, obviously over the next 20 years, between now and 2040, we'll hit the point where natives with Pluto and Leo will be almost a century old. So we will probably see the last, the, the dying off of that generation essentially, but also the the dying off of that power that they still hold or maintain over various structures and levels of society. Um, so that's something to pay attention to. And the last point that I have, which isn't a great conclusion point, but one of the observations I made that I mentioned on the forecast is just that in the chess world, um, the chess AI developed strategies that humans had never done before, right. which, co- which caused human chess masters in turn to try to learn what they could from the innovations of the machines. Um, so perhaps part of this era is humans learning from machines. So... This may be an incredibly crucial point because the greatest benefit of meeting an extraterrestrial civilization, especially one that's smarter than humans, would be the potential to learn from them. 
So maybe they think about or they perceive the universe in a way that's different than we do, and therefore they're able to see things that we have not or cannot. Um, perhaps the same is true for an artificial or an alien intelligence, um, if or when we ever meet them. You know, creating AI, AI can do things and it can think about and perceive parts of the world differently than humans can, and some of the way that it perceives the world or per se perceives information or data may be useful to humans, and, and um, we may be able, to be able to gain insights from that that we can't anticipate. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it, it boggles the mind, but um, for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, um, that was actually my main, my last <laughs> like summary point that I got from some of this research. Um, are there any other major points or things that you take from it or take from what we've learned from going through the history of Pluto and Aquarius or themes from the past that are obviously relevant to now or things that we can therefore like anticipate or anything about the future? Um, no, apart from what we've already covered, I think we 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 did a nice job. Anything I had to say, I've said over the course of the 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 episode. Um, I, I guess, yeah, just to to remind everyone that what does distinguish this Pluto in Aquarius transit is um, this long trine to Uranus and Gemini that it's going to have that uh, some of the past ones did not, and um, yeah, that that changes the kind of experience it'll be. Yeah, I, I think that's a really important point. And here is a diagram actually from Archetypal Explorer that I used on the forecast, which kind of shows that. Um, but the Uranus Pluto trine that's forming right now and will start going exact over the next several years, but really has its greatest intensity in the period. Largely the period that Uranus is in Gemini um, between 2025 and the early 2030s. Yeah, yeah. Although you know, right from the get-go, uh, you know, they're they're pretty close, even in 2025, right? I mean, oh yeah. Well, right now, this year in 2024, they're going to get about two degrees from each other. Right. So exactly. Yeah, yeah. We're we're already in a period where things are going to start moving very quickly, like very fast. Um, especially with some of the technological stuff, but also um, with the other Pluto and Aquarius themes that we've talked about and that have come up during the course of this episode. Yeah, yeah. So, um, we're you know, may you live in interesting times. I think was that like a Chinese proverb? I that think is, actually, that is, maybe. Yeah, that maybe is a Chinese proverb. Um, it it is fitting. There's there's another line that that I love. Um, Around 1972, someone asked uh, Zhu Enlai, who was one of the Chinese leaders, like aside from Mao, um, they asked him what the effects of the French Revolution would be. And he said, too soon to tell. Now, the truth is, he thought they were talking about the recent uprising in Paris four years earlier in 1968. But a lot of people took that remark to mean he was talking about like the French Revolution in the 1700s, and that it was too soon to tell. <laughs> what the effect of that French Revolution would be, um, and and even though there was a sort of mistaken communication that created that thought, I I I love that idea that um, as with the French Revolution, the American Revolution, it may be too soon to tell to know what like the ultimate um, effect of these experiments are of these social experiments, and um, whatever unfolds over these next twenty years. Um, may may sort of bring those answers a lot closer to home. 
um, after being out in the wilderness for so long. So um, yeah, definitely, may we live in interesting times. We definitely do. We definitely do. Yeah, I think we're we're definitely going to see the the highs, the very highs of heights of technological process, as well as the lows of technological process and the transformative effect that it has on society and culture and religion and politics and everything else. Um, you know, as a person with heavy Aquarius placements, I am primarily excited about that because I tend to be more of a tech person, and I sort of marvel sometimes at just the ways that technology can be used in ways that are interesting to do things that you couldn't do otherwise or to augment human abilities that maybe you know allow you or enable you to do things that you couldn't do otherwise and i'm excited to see some of that while also having trepidation about some of the downsides but um i think it should be a really interesting 20 years and i'm excited to see where it goes and excited to study it as an astrologer and continue um, documenting what's happening in real time as we see this new era in human history start to emerge as we have been recently because we can really feel that we're right on the cusp of a very important turning point um, and i think it will be at the very least interesting to watch and to witness that together as astrologers yeah yeah amen all right. Well, I think that's it for this episode then, Nick. Thanks a lot for joining me for this today and thanks for helping me to get some of this research out. So this was like, you know, not super polished um thing in presentation, primarily just because I had done all this research for the forecast for the year ahead forecast. Couldn't obviously mention all of this in the year ahead forecast because Austin would have murdered me. <laughs> and I think I already, you know, crammed enough in or a little bit too much more in than he, than he was comfortable or than I should have. But um, this gave me the ability to get some of this other research out there. And I'm hoping that other people can pick up some of the threads that we found and then follow them to discover other things that we overlooked or, or hadn't seen. And I'm sure there's much more to be found that will help us to understand and contextualize the current era of history that we're moving into now. So I look forward to, I hope some people will like um, leave comments on the YouTube video for this episode if they find other things and let us know if you find other discoveries. Um, and I look forward to seeing some of that future research. Yeah, it'll be interesting. You know, hopefully we're both still around 20 years from now when Pluto's going into Pisces and, and, you know, we can go back and watch this episode and have a, have a laugh or maybe be impressed or maybe be embarrassed. Who knows? Uh, but yeah, it, hopefully we make it. Yeah. Well, at the very least, hopefully there's like an AI representation of myself that's like entertained by how things went 20 years ago and can appreciate it, even if I am not around in my my current physical form um but as speaking of current physical forms like what are you up to what are you working on and what do you have going on yeah well um i'm um i'm uh, i'm finally releasing uh more files from my research database um so they can find be found at the the shop section of my website nicktakenbestastrologer.com so um, yeah, if you if you enjoyed what uh, what I was offering on Chris's site last uh, a few months ago, there's there's a lot more. There's uh, files on on Russian history, French history. There's a whole file of of deaths. Uh, there's another whole file of marriages, uh, and I'm going to be putting a bunch of biographical ones up uh, over the next few months as well as I polish them off. Um, so yeah, I've been working hard on this, and I hope um, you, my fellow researchers out there will will make good use of them. 
And uh, besides that, as always, I'm um, doing astrology consultations seven days a week. Um, I'm available for booking at nickdaganbestastrologer.com um, under the consultations tab. And uh, yeah, if you're looking for an astrologer for all your astrology needs, your your electionals, your rectifications, your your uh, general chart readings, your burning questions, whatever have you, I'm, I'm available. And um, look forward to hearing from all your viewers. Cool. And what's your website again? NickDaganBestAstrologer.com. Awesome. I'll put a link to that in the description below this episode on YouTube or on the podcast website for this uh, episode. Um, as for myself, uh, my main things are if you want to study astrology with me and how to read birth charts and how uh, what my approach to astrology is, I teach a course on ancient astrology and Hellenistic astrology through my website and through my course site at theastrologyschool.com. And otherwise, if you want to support this work and support this research that I'm doing, um, I have an amazing group of patrons that support the astrology podcast through my page on patreon.com and give me the ability to do these like, extended excursions where I go through and do all this historical research and then present it to people for free. So if you'd like to support that work and in exchange get access to bonus content like early access to new episodes, then go to patreon.com slash astrology podcast to sign up and support me through Patreon. Otherwise, I forgot, I forgot the astrology live stream. Uh, Patrick Watson and I um, also have a new YouTube channel. So uh, youtube.com slash the astrology live stream. Every Sunday, uh, Patrick and I are doing uh, um, sort of um, more, more organized live streams than we were doing in 2023. We just did a four-hour episode on the astrology of Napoleon's life. Uh, before that, we did a really excellent forecast episode on 2024. We have a lot of really exciting things coming up. So um, yeah, check us out uh, on our YouTube channel, The Astrology Livestream on, on YouTube. And uh, we also have a Patreon. That's what reminded me, Chris, uh, uh, mentioning his Patreon. Um, so yeah, come check that out as well. Sorry, I forgot to mention that earlier. And we have a, and we have a website, the theastrologylivestream.com. Cool. Well, I... Uh, definitely encourage people to uh, join and to watch that curiously titled and well titled theastrologylivestream.com. It's um, Watson's fault, man. I wanted a different name. <laughs> okay. No, it's a good name. I think the keyword is really good and I think uh, I think it's good. And I, I give you permission. You have my blessings. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, I think that's it. Thanks a lot for joining me for this episode, Nick. Thank you. Thank you as always, Chris. All right, and thanks everyone for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast, and we'll see you again next time. If you appreciate the work I'm doing here on the podcast and you'd like to find a way to support it, then consider becoming a patron through my page on patreon.com. In exchange, you'll get access to some great subscriber benefits, including early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the forecast each month, our monthly Auspicious Elections podcast, which is only available to patrons, a whole exclusive podcast series called the Casual Astrology Podcast, or you can even get your name listed in the credits. You can find out more information at patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. Shout out to our sponsor for this episode, which is the Chani app, the number one astrology app for self-discovery, mindfulness, and healing. You can download it on the Apple App Store or on Google Play, or for more information, visit app.chani.com. Special thanks to all the patrons that helped to support the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our producers tier, including patrons Christy Moe, 
Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Jeannie Marie Kaplan, and Melissa Delano. If you're looking for a reliable astrologer to get an astrological consultation with, then we have a new list of astrologers on the podcast website that we recommend for readings. Most of the astrologers specialize in birth chart readings, although some also offer synastry, rectification, electional astrology, horary questions, and more. Find out more information at theastrologypodcast.com slash consultations. The astrology software that we use and recommend here on the podcast is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available for the PC at alabe.com. Use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we recommend a software program called Astro Gold for Mac OS, which is from the creators of Solar Fire for PC, and it includes both modern and traditional techniques. You can find out more information at astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount. If you'd like to learn more about my approach to astrology, then I'd recommend checking out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, where I go over the history, philosophy, and techniques of ancient astrology, taking people from beginner up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. If you're really looking to expand your studies of astrology, then I would recommend my Hellenistic Astrology course, which is an online course on ancient astrology where I take people through basic concepts up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. There's over 100 hours of video lectures as well as guided readings of ancient texts, and by the time you finish the course, you will have a strong foundation in how to read birth charts as well as make predictions. You can find out more information at courses.theastrologyschool.com. And finally, thanks to our sponsors, including The Mountain Astrologer Magazine, which is a quarterly astrology magazine, which you can read in print or online at mountainastrologer.com. And the Northwest Astrological Conference, which is happening both in person and online May 23rd through the 27th, 2024. You can find out more information at norwac.net. 